colleagues, Mr. Chairman, you're probably wondering what we're all doing here. We are here today because we are going to honor one of the outstanding men of our times. One of the most handsome, one of the most astute, one of the most brilliant people that has ever been discovered in this world that we have here. And today is the day we honor this wonderful person for his contributions that he has made to society. Welcome to the Progress City Radio Hour. My name is Michael Crawford. With me, as always, my brother Jeff. Jeff, how are things going? I am doing well. Very excited about this month's episode. It's one that we've been talking about since we restarted. This is, uh, we're in the pantheon, Michael, of the greats. Yeah, this is one we've, uh, we've been thinking about for a while. You know, one of the things we always come to as we're doing our little stories on our little podcast uh, are you know the people that worked with Disney over the years and the people that came and went in the studio and at Imagineering and you know a lot of notable people coming in and out of those doors it's very true and uh, you know different times just people that would really surprise people who don't know Disney brushes with greatness brushes with genius a lot of people yeah uh, this was the thing that like growing up uh, being a disney fan and also a snob uh you know it's always fun to impress your friends but like guess who worked with disney or guess who's working with disney now and i mean this is something that you know a lot of the people we've talked to who worked there during the eisner wells era people like uh, you know Tim Delaney, who we recently spoke with, talked about this a lot. It was the level of talent he was bringing in. Always wanted the sort of the best at the, you know, especially in the first 10 years. I wanted the best of the best. Wanted it to be as the sort of like agora, shall we say, of, of uh, thinkers and doers. And, you know, wanted these people come in. And Disney had long been like that, especially in the early years, as we're going to talk about. The Disney studio started off uh, as a real a sort of intellectual darling. Uh, a lot of uh, prominent people in those early years of the studio, what we think of as the golden years before World War II, uh, just so many people coming through the gates of that studio and just seeking an audience with Walt. Yeah, and wild to think that Walt is just a few years away from Missouri and, you know, he's like meeting these people who are, you know, legendary composers, writers, artists. He's 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 started essentially an art school, you know. He's Yeah. He's doing all this stuff uh, that's kind of in the high culture. And he basically becomes like a work program for i mean a lot of these sort of artists pouring out of europe because things are going weird there and you know a lot of uh extraordinarily talented illustrators and artists and things wind up on the disney staff payroll just doing visualization art and things like that and uh you know before you know some things we're going to talk about with the warren and other things hit it it, it really was a renaissance place. The word renaissance will come up a lot in, in this in this episode. Indeed. Yeah, so, uh, so you know, who are we going to talk about? Who, who are some of our 
our, our luminaries for today? Well, when you talk about Disney and great artists, you gotta, you gotta talk about Salvador Dali. There's a lot there with Walt and Salvador Dali and a project they worked on in the 1940s. Absolutely. And they were buds. They were, they were good buddies. That's right. Uh, around the same time, Walt was also kind of meeting and working with uh, some very famous Russian composers. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that and some some of the Russian musicians and composers that came in to visit Walt at the studio. Yeah, some real names you would never think that would be kicking around in that time and place <laughs> at That's the right. Disney studio. That's right. Uh, we're going to talk about Michael Eisner a little bit and get a little bit of his uh, penchant for architecture, which, you know, got him lauded and, uh, you know, a lot of notoriety in the late 20th century. Yeah, kind of his, his calling card. And we're going to end with a bold vision of the future than none other than Mr. Ray Bradbury, who had a lengthy uh, association with Disney the man and Disney the company. Yeah, absolutely. And was a... Big cheerleader for all things Disney. Very, very out there. So as you see, we have quite a parade of notables to come. So let's start by traveling back through time to the golden age of Disney animation when Walt had a run-in with a very unforgettable artist. red and gold from autumn flowers purple and blue from twilight hours green summer hills and rainbows play a part a painter's brush <laughs> a work of art Most of us are inclined to think of the animated cartoon as a modern invention, like the airplane or the automobile. But actually, the idea of imparting life and motion to still pictures is as ancient as man himself. But in our time, we've seen this dream come true. The animated drawing has matured and has taken its rightful place among the fine arts. It's hard to understate just how much of a critical darling Walt Disney was among the cultural elite in the 1930s. Everyone from Charlie Chaplin to Sergei Eisenstein sang his praises. Eisenstein was a Soviet filmmaker who practically invented film theory and the technique of montage, and he wrote treatise after treatise praising Disney's work, which he compared to that of Picasso and Salvador Dali. During this time, Disney was wined and dined and feted. He made the rounds of parties and premieres and enjoyed taking in classical performances from his box at the Hollywood Bowl. A parade of notable intellectuals made their way through the gates of the Disney studio, which Walt had really turned into a kind of artistic salon. All kinds of lecturers and instructors were present to help the Disney artists own their craft, as Walt continually sought to push the bounds of animation. Jeff, he had people... I mean, he had like Frank Lloyd Wright. He had everybody coming through. It was wild, yeah. And and people, yeah, like you mentioned Frank Lloyd Wright, who come in and are 
all about it. You know, it's like insert whatever, you know, innovative company. Now Disney was that company in the late 1930s and it was for artists. So people wanted to come and see it. Yeah, totally. I mean, politicians, everybody wanted to come through and see like how it happened. Uh, sadly, the, this golden age was kind of short-lived. Uh, the one-two punch of the 1941 animator strike and World War II both kind of tarnished Walt's reputation with the left, and it really cut off the studio's ability to spend heavily on things that weren't mission critical. With the war in Europe, nearly half of Walt's earning potential was cut off, and the expensive animated features he sought to create had to be scaled back to the so-called package features like Make Mine Music and Melody Time. Many of the fine artists which had provided such inspirational sketches for Pinocchio or Fantasia were let go as production slowed, including legendary figures like Kai Nielsen. This was a really rough time because he had so many people on staff doing things that, you know, weren't, you know, the meat and potatoes animation work, doing inspirational stuff and like this theoretical stuff kind of, and just kind of had to let everybody go because he couldn't afford it. Yeah, it was a time of broad horizons that got immediately shut down just a couple of years into it. Yeah. I mean, I love the package features. Don't get me wrong. I really, oh, yeah. I've yeah. like, I enjoy them more as I get older, actually. I have enjoyed them more as time has gone by. But when you look at like Bambi and Pinocchio and Fantasia, like the animation quality there is nuts. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, what they were doing. All of the production value. I mean, the, the stuff they would do behind the scenes. I mean, to get ready for Bambi. Think about all the, the work they did having live animals in the studio to learn how they really moved and going for the realism. I mean, nuts. All the kind of multimedia special effects work they did on Fantasia. I mean, yeah. they were really reaching out. Right. Uh, yeah, it was kind of like with all the money they made off of Snow White, it was like anything goes. But then when the work started in Europe, it, it just immediately cut that off and they just couldn't afford it. Uh, even before America entered the war, you know, the war was raging in Europe. The cracks had begun to show a little bit in 1940. Fantasia, it didn't make the splash that Walt had hoped. And uh, he was kind of disappointed. He began to turn his back on high culture in favor of a more populist approach. Uh, by 1948, when Walt testified before HUAC about the events surrounding the 1941 strike, Left-wing intellectuals' love affair with the studio seemed to be over, but Walt's turned to a more populist approach and the financial compromises he was forced to make during and after the war didn't mean a complete end to Disney's encounters with high art. Many intellectuals remained fascinated with Disney, and Walt certainly remained fascinated with the possibilities of great artists. And it's hard to think of anyone he was more fascinated with than Salvador Dali. Dali was born in Spain in 1904 and in the ensuing years rose to prominence as one of the most famous artists of the surrealist movement. Like Walt, he was a real promoter and he knew how to work the PR machine and his antics made him a darling of the press on both sides of the Atlantic. By 1940, Dali found himself in the United States where he had fled to escape the Spanish Civil War and the onset of World War II. His work was well known in America and drew Walt's attention when Walt spotted a book of Dali's art on Mark Davis's desk at the studio. Walt asked to borrow the book, 
soon brought a copy of his own, which he hoped to get Dally to sign. Uh, Wall was clearly intrigued by what he saw. Yeah. Well, that it was Mark Davis. I know. Uh, of course. Mark, Mr. Bon Vivant, Bohemian Mark right. Davis. That's right. With the Dali book. Dali, for his part, he was an enormous Disney fan. He proclaimed to the press that Walt was one of the great cinematic surrealists alongside Harpo Marx and Cecil B. DeMille. <laughs> uh, Dali was a particular fan of the Silly Symphony shorts, which he called, quote, dazzling cataclysmic rainbows. Well, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, Funny Little Bunnies was a favorite. <laughs> I hope. Peculiar penguins. A genius. The two artists allegedly met for the first time at Jack Warner's house at a party in August of 1945. Daly was crashing there at the time as he was painting portraits of Warner and his wife, while he was also in town working for Alfred Hitchcock on the dream sequence segment for Spellbound, which is really something else yeah. uh, when you see it. Uh, his uh, He wanted to do a lot of things that they couldn't afford to do, so his... His uh, dreams got cut down, cut down a little bit, but it's still definitely Dolly's work. Um, this party apparently wasn't the first contact between Dolly and Disney. There's a telegram to Walt from Dolly's wife Gala in February of 1945 that indicates the two had already discussed the possibility of a collaboration uh, by that point. So regardless of how it started, the two really did hit it off, developed a sort of mutual fan club. By the end of 1945, Walt had invited Dally to work on a project for the studio. The press, of course, ate it up. An AP headline from November 1945 read, Dolly Disney Planned Screen Nightmare. <laughs> the report read, quote, A screen nightmare is planned by surrealist artist Salvatore Dali and producer <laughs> Walt Disney. Dali will collaborate with Disney starting in January on a movie fantasy which will feature forms half animal, half vegetable. <laughs> Featured at Epcot Center. Yeah, exactly. Uh, here at Epcot, we're working on forms that are half animal, half vegetable. <laughs> uh, I don't. I, I'm sure they got that quote from Dali. I guess very strange. Uh, but that was kind of par for the course. Uh, Dolly signed a contract with Disney on January 14th, 1946, for what Dolly proclaimed would be the first surrealist cartoon, or, as he put it in his own self-titled newspaper about himself, quote, the first motion picture of the never seen before. I'm really into the fact that he had his own newspaper. I mean, <laughs> I that's... Uh... The Dolly News. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that kind of... Uh, we're, we're kind of on his level, I oh, feel yeah. like, in, Absolutely. Uh, in our youths. Yes, that's right. Uh, Dali had been trying to work his way into cinema. Obviously, he had had those really prominent pieces with uh, Louis Buñuel in Europe, but hadn't really made his way in otherwise. He really wanted to get into it because, I mean, he felt it was a way of reaching a lot more people. It was a way of getting more attention and promoting himself. Uh, he was really excited about the possibilities of animation. Uh, here the motion is so fluid, he said. You can create effects magnifique. Surrealism will reach immense numbers of people it has not before. So he was into it. The project that Dali was to work on was an animated short intended for a future package feature. Dali's art was to accompany a song entitled Destino, 
which had been written by Mexican songwriter Armando Dominguez. Walt had picked up the song, along with several others, as part of the El Grupo efforts which led to the Latin American features Saludos Amigos and the Three Caballeros. Lyricist Ray Gilbert translated Destino into English as My Destiny of Love, and a recording of the song was made featuring Mexican singer Dora Luz, who also appeared in The Three Caballeros. She was the lady singing in the sky that Donald was entranced by. The song was never used for that film, uh, so Walt had it on the shelf for a future project, and Dally jumped at the chance to use it as he felt like Destino, or Destiny, was a very appropriate subject for his work. And here again, we see the benefits of El Grupo. I know, as far-reaching. That music is amazing, and I never knew it was her singing it. That's uh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's a fun little uh, legacy tie-in there. Yeah, yeah. uh, This this music is so good. I really is. I love it. Can't believe they did not use it uh, initially. But what a great eye or ear, should I say, of Walt to hold on to that and. And use it for this. Definitely. Dolly was set up in an office on the third floor of the Disney Animation Building, where he began work on the project with Disney artists John Hinch and Bob Cormack. As Bob Thomas reported for the AP in April 1946 under the headline, Walt Disney has gone long hair in a big way. <laughs> Quote, the way Mr. Dolly and his co-worker, Disney artist John Hinch, described it, it sounds like Sigmund Freud on a lost weekend. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Researching this story made me realize just how much long hair was in the slang at the time. Because yeah. it's in, like, every news report. Like, Walt Disney's gone long hair. <laughs> so weird. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, but what would this film be about? Dally, speaking to the press, called it, quote, a magical exposition on the problem of life in the labyrinth of time. Walt, on the other hand, described it as, quote, a simple story about a young girl in search of true love. (laughs) Later that year in August, Dally told the San Francisco Examiner, quote, it is to be called Destino, and it is exotic, very exotic. When asked what it was about, he replied, about? About love, what else? Another theme, as Dally revealed, was that true love, she is not possessable until time is destructed. Naturally. Of course. As you do. Hinch and Dally worked on the project for about eight months, beginning in early 1946. Dally clocked in and out, just like everyone else, working nine to five. Apparently he was very punctual. Uh, After a few months, it seems that Dolly started working out of his studio in Monterey and Hinch would visit on the weekends. Man, what a whirlwind for young John Hinch to be (laughs) working with Salvador Dolly. I know. Like, Walt picked him, like, Walt's like, oh, you're, you're kind of a, kind of one of these guys. You're an artistic fellow, Johnny. You, you know, you go work with him. But yeah, like being thrown in was like, here, you work with Salvador Dolly. And figure right. it out. It's pretty wild. Pretty wild. Um, also, uh, Walt, Hinch, and Dolly all uh, having mustache contests. Yeah, of course. In the, of course. Uh, all, have, all have a very uh, similar look, really. Yes, yes. Anyway, Dolly and Hinch worked on a lot of story sketches. 
as they tried to work out the flow of the piece. Apparently, Hinch got so good at mimicking Dolly's style that even Dolly found it hard to tell the sketches apart decades later. Uh, only Hinch apparently could tell the difference. As the project progressed, Dolly would come up with ideas and sketch out key scenes, while Hinch tried to knit it all together into a story that made some kind of narrative flow. Apparently, Dolly was a fountain of ideas, and things kept shifting as the artists came up with new approaches. After all, it was a surrealistic film, so Hinch's task to tie all the different vignettes together was not an easy one. Hmm. Uh, from what they say, it just seems like Dolly was like, and here this will happen, and here this will happen. And then Hinch had to figure <laughs> out, it was like, all right, so this is how we get from point A to point B. And uh, they did a lot of story sketches, and then uh, Dolly started doing some paintings, which are really remarkable. Uh, that would be the, the sort of key moments in the film, which was, yes, quite surreal. As one of the story treatments put it, the film was, quote, a girl's search for destiny to find her true love. Dolly said that the story followed one man's quest to fulfill his destiny and be united with an obsessing feminine image. All of this, of course, really ties in closely with Dolly's work. There's a lot in the film, a lot of themes, a lot of visuals. Pure Dolly, uh, he was, you know, he had these ideas and he worked them. Uh, basically, as far as we can tell, the through line of the story is this. Kronos, the ancient Greek personification of time, falls in love with a mortal woman, but there are many obstacles preventing them from being together. They take turns dancing through surrealist landscapes, and lots of Dali-ish stuff happens. The first part of the film, as storyboarded, focuses on the woman, and the second part on the man. In the woman's story, she tries to work out her destiny, but faces, quote, a series of symbolic experiences which are revealed as temporary seductions and not her true destiny. She passes these by. She ascends the Tower of Babel. There are hollow men with eyeballs for heads that gaze at her. So she hides in a conch shell which falls through space. Quote, As she falls, the girl becomes detached from her old personality and travels onward in a fantastic journey through space. Finally, she reaches the limitless plane where she will meet her true destiny. How do you uh, storyboard this? Yes, exactly. What imagine? I mean, Hinge seemed to be really into it, but at the same time, not an easy task. No, no, not at all. Especially with, I mean, a lot of ideas that you can't really draw, <laughs> <laughs> like concepts that don't translate well to a drawing. Right. Uh, lots of Dally things would happen. There are eyeballs, there are ants, there are clocks, there are crutches. Uh, Dally decided that the film would end, quote, with a baseball game ballet culminating in a magical temple of love floating in the sky. According to Walt, Dolly thought baseball was a uniquely American form of ballet choreography. Baseball, it is fascinating, Dolly said. About the game, I know nothing, but as an artist, I am obsessed. <laughs> I bet Walt loved that, though. Yeah. That's great stuff. You picture like Walt, like leaning back in his chair in the corner of the room. Like, oh man, yeah, this guy's character. This is sneaking great. Stuff. A, sneaking a bite of chili every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Keep himself like, going. Trying to like uh not have like a uh you know uh, have chili come out his nose when he right. laughs. laughs. 
Oh, that's a good one, Sal. Uh, in April 1946, the LA Times said the film would have live actors, quote, whom the Dalian metamorphosis will change back and forth from live to cartoon figures. Uh, therefore, the two lovers would be portrayed at times by live ballet dancers. Times had reported in December of 1945 that Disney had met with Maria Gambarelli, who had been the prima ballerina at the Metropolitan Opera from 1938 to 1941. He hoped that she would choreograph the dance and possibly perform in the film as well. Uh, this really shows how plugged in Walt was to the arts world. I know. It's just hard to imagine with what, like you said, the fall from this the, after the strike. Uh, and this is kind of after it, but uh, things would come crashing down eventually. But he was very plugged in at the time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, really interesting. I mean, this was, she was a big like headline news kind of person. So, and speaking to the press, Walt compared Dolly's work on Destino to Kai Nielsen's contributions to Fantasia's Night on Bald Mountain. Quote, I want to give more big artists such opportunities, he said. We need them. Walt added, The thing I resent most is people who try to keep me in well worn grooves. We have to keep breaking new trails. We were panned for Fantasia, yet its audience keeps building each year. Now, I find that interesting. Yes. Like he knew, like it was kind of like Fantasia was like cold water in his face and he reacted really strongly, but it's like he started to know that it was gonna have a rep. Yeah. And it'd be interesting to see the, you know, the alternate reality where he just stuck with the studio longer to see if more of the stuff would have flourished. I mean, he obviously got into theme parks and kind of lost some of the interest he had in the studio, but, um, yeah, you you would wonder if this would kind of bear fruit, more fruit than even it did. If yeah. he would have just kind of gotten his sea legs about the critics. Uh, it seemed like the critics really got to him and bothered him. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, it is, you know, this story is typically progressed at, uh, portrayed as, you know, Fantasia didn't do well, totally changed in his attitude. But this shows that his his interest was still still there but as you say you know he soon switched to theme parks uh it's a shame we did just can clone him because he, right, he was right. still interested in doing big things in film yeah. uh, after a point where i think people think he probably had given up on that right uh, to that point as work on destino progressed walt revealed that noted artist thomas hart benton had recently visited the studio, but he wasn't ready to reveal details on what they were working on. Benton had first visited the studio for a tour with other artists in 1940, where Walt showed off the Fantasia work and his new Burbank studio. Benton again visited the studio in March 1946 because Walt wanted him to help with, get this, an animated folk operetta about the life of Davy Crockett. Oh, man. I know that may have just that may have just risen above the Don Quixote project as my uh, one that I wish we could have. I know, unreal. Yeah, and from like this, the sketches that this guy did, it sounds like it was going to be like totally crazy, uh, totally sure. crazy. Sure, it would have to have been. Yes. Uh, on Benton's 1946 visit, he ran into Dally, who encouraged him to sign on with the studio. 
Benton did return, working with studio musicians to develop a score and potential story for the Crockett Project, which would give him something he could work with to, quote, concoct and draw the characters. Uh, tragically, <laughs> very tragically, this project never came together. Uh, there were practical objections to all the ideas I dragged up, Benton later said. Uh, with Latin American sensitivities running high after the war, even the stories ending with Crockett being killed at the Alamo by a Mexican army was considered too hot a topic to portray. After a few weeks, Benton withdrew from the project, telling Disney that, quote, Walt Disney's stuff is good enough for my money as it is without a lot of damn painters getting in it. <laughs> he said that he was too set in my ways to be very adaptable. As he later said, I saw what a tough balancing act Disney was entangled with, and I realized I was just too set in my ways to learn to cope with it. Benton sold his interest in the Crockett Project to Disney for $3,000, which, as you might imagine, was a decision he would come to regret with the Crockett boom of the 1950s. Oh, man, what a shame. That would have been incredible. Yeah, really and weird. Would have been. And very weird, yeah. I can't I, believe that the uh, the Latin American sensitivities, it seemed like not a time for those kind of sensitivities. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't think that would be on their radar, but apparently it was. They they didn't want to offend anybody. So who knew? Stupid woke Disney. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, the Destino project sadly began to cool off as well. Uh, to try and drum up interest, John Hinch made a 17-second animation test to show people what they were working on because he was really into it. In the short clip, two heads of fate ride on the backs of turtles. The heads come together, and the image of a ballerina appears in the negative space between their faces. Apparently, to show this to Dali, he drove it up to Monterey, where Dali was working. They found a uh, sort of one-screen theater that was there nearby, just this little rundown theater, showing B-movies, and uh, got the got the asked the manager if they could use the theater uh, to just show this after the movies were done for the night. And so they watched just Hinch and Dolly alone in the theater and said they screened the 17 second clip and they heard from like the back of the theater in the dark. What in God's name was that? It was like the projection. Hinch was like, I knew we had something there. Uh, so yeah, to be a fly on that wall, but sadly it wasn't enough to save the project. It's hard to really pin down why Destino failed, although it was probably a combination of multiple factors. For one thing, World War II financial crunch was really turning the screws on the studio, and Walt was stressed because funding was drying up. July 1946, it was announced the studio was letting go 400 of their 1,000 employees due to rising labor costs. I mean, that's like almost half the staff. Mm. It's easy to see how in that environment, Walt might not feel like continuing to pay Dolly big bucks to turn out sketches of a baseball ballet. Uh, press reports at the time of the layoff said that Destino was amongst the films that would see production stop until, quote, necessary adjustments are made. Uh, other films grinding to a halt were Peter Pan, Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Lady and the Tramp, and The Little People, which I believe uh, would later become Darby O'Gill and The Little People. King of the Leprechauns. King of the Leprechauns. So pretty much all their 50s animated output was on hold, plus Darby O'Gill. Another factor was that Disney's film distributor didn't want any more package features. They wanted to get back to fairy tales like Snow White, 
And even after Dali left, there would be another package feature, 1948's Melody Time. And, of course, maybe Walt himself thought the project was straying too far off course. There are some recollections of him protesting to things getting too caught up in baseball ballets. And, uh, <laughs> you know, what am I spending my money on? The hell is this? Yet, according to Hinch, Walt always had second thoughts about canceling the project. Years afterward, Hinch said, whenever Walt and I talked about Dolly, he always said we should have made that thing anyway. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Despite their project falling through, Disney and Dolly remained pals. Dolly came to Walt's house to ride his backyard railroad. Walt named him a vice president of the Carrollwood Pacific. Uh, Walt and Lily, in turn, traveled to Port Legat in Spain to visit Dolly and Gala in the 1950s. At the time, they talked about doing an adaptation of Don Quixote or El Cid. Sadly, those never came to pass. A piece of Dolly's art from Destino, the painting of the head of Jupiter, hung in Walt's office for the rest of his life. Hmm. Dolly himself lived until 1989 when he died at the age of 85. It is so strange to think he was kicking around doing his thing in our lifetimes. Yeah, I mean, that is wild. I mean, 1999, uh, it really makes you think about what if Walt had lived in his 80s and was active in the 1980s. It's kind of mind-bending. Yeah, I wish, I wish. If only. Even after Dolly and Disney were gone, Destino survived. As work proceeded on Fantasia 2000 in 1999, Roy E. Disney decided to try and make the long-abandoned short come to life. Despite resistance, he managed to get it set up at the Paris studio, which Disney Animation operated in those years. Directed by Dominique Monferrer, the seven-minute short debuted in 2003. It incorporated the art that Dolly and Hinch had worked on all those years ago. In fact, Hinch was still alive to contribute his recollections to its development. And it even used that 17-second clip, which Hinch had produced in 1946. There were differences in the final project as well. Significant cuts were made to the original material, and changes were made to make the film more readable on a narrative level. Changes were made to the storyboards to simplify things, to make it a more conventional love story, but it's still pretty out there. Unlike the original, obviously, CGI was used to generate some of the environments for the film. Uh, This is a move I'm not sure about. Obviously, it was done to make the animation more affordable and you know, Walt did always love new tech, but there's something about it that clashes for me uh, in this in this case. Uh, also for cost-cutting purposes was the limited animation, which gives a sort of dreamy stop-motion effect, but also seems really distracting for me. I'd love to see a, you know, a fully animated version. Yeah, just punch it into that AI that Peter Jackson uses and just let it... <laughs> let it go. Yeah. 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 One cool thing they did use was the original soundtrack featuring Dara Luz. Yes. Amazingly, they had only an old 78 acetate copy to work from. Wow. Uh, from this, I don't know whether it was just a demo or what, but that's all they had. Uh, technology was used to freshen it up to you know take out the scratches and the clicks and the pops. I mean, I'm sure this record had not been treated too well in the whatever 60 years right it had been probably sitting around some basement somewhere before dave smith rescued it i would imagine Um, but uh it worked out roy came up with the idea of adding a needle drop at the start which i gives i think that just gives the perfect vibe yes 
Uh, yes. I love they went with the old recording. It, it has this real like spooky ethereal vibe, which I think is perfect for the subject. It's like a transmission from deep space or just like you, yeah. you're getting it on like the shortwave radio in the middle of the night. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it when I saw it, that they were using that as the music and I had no idea about the full story of it, but uh, it is definitely a great effect for sure. Yeah. And I mean, it was, they argued over whether they should use it or not. I'm like, man, guys, it's perfect. It's really mm-hmm. perfect. Destino premiered on June 2nd, 2003 at the Annecy International Animated Film Festival in Annecy, France. Film was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Short Film of 2003. It was really hard to find for a long time. I f- managed to first see it at a DALI exhibit at MoMA in 2008. But today, you can find it on Blu-ray releases of Fantasia 2000, and it's also on Disney+. Plus. There's also a documentary, Dali and Disney, A Date with Destino, which can be found on Blu-ray and YouTube. And I encourage you to seek them out. It's a fascinating project, and even with all the changes, the final result is pretty amazing. As we have said, the late 1930s were a heady time for the Disney studio, as the work of Walt Disney and his animators had made him a darling of intellectuals and creators. Often during this time, Disney would have great artists in for tours of the studio, and some of the most notable of these guests were prominent Russian composers. Michael, give me a Russian composer any day of the week. Love them. They they really, they, they know how to bring it. They got the access to that great folk music. They know yeah. what's up, man. They got this balalaikas. That's right. Disney was a pioneer in film music with the technological achievements required in making Steamboat Willie and Mickey Mouse cartoons come to life. And thanks to the work of Carl Stallings and others, this association with music took another step forward with the Silly Symphonies. And by 1937, Disney made history again with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs being the first commercially released soundtrack album, which is crazy that is wild yeah snow white broadened the horizons for disney as we've said and received ample praise from artists worldwide 
The financial success of Snow White allowed Disney to build a new studio and increase production to new feature ideas that would inspire the studio for decades to come. I mean, this this time frame, if you just follow the threads, you know, you're getting stuff like into the 80s, 90s. I mean, yeah, from these few years around Snow White, uh, never ending fount of ideas. It's like that after a Toy Story, and they had that meeting where they came up with the whole Pixar slate, you know? It's like, oh, yeah. For years. Yeah, totally. It's, it's like even, that initial success. They're like, well, what what else can we do? And, it, you know, possibilities seem endless. Right. One of the most interesting of these new ideas was a concert feature, which came from the development of a Mickey Mouse short based on the Sorcerer's Apprentice, a story written by Goethe and put to music by Paul Dukas. Walt met with Leopold Stokowski, one of the most famous conductors of the age, at Chasen's in Hollywood to discuss work on the project. Now, Chasen's was one of those restaurants in Hollywood that was home to a who's who. I have to include the fact that when it opened, it was named Chasen's Southern Pit, (laughs) (laughs) which is amazing. And Elizabeth Taylor had chili from Chasen's sent to Rome while she was filming in Cleopatra. So I'm really hating we can't go to Chasen's to have our uh, podcast meetings of our own now. Oh, no kidding. I Now I want to open one called Chasen's Southern Pit and get a, have a barbecue restaurant. Uh, the Elizabeth Taylor story, uh, that really adds a new texture when I watch in Cleopatra in the future. Yeah, just know she's mention. been downing chili before yeah, each take. I didn't know she was in the uh, chili fraternity with us. I know. Who knew? Who knew? Regardless... Walt and Leopold quickly expanded the idea of setting this kind of music to animation into a whole feature and enlisted famous music critic Deems Taylor to help collaborate in picking the music for this concert feature and planning out what the music would represent to animators. In 1938, the team, along with Disney story artists, had a three-hour conference where they discussed possibilities. One possibility mentioned and developed was the Firebird Suite by Igor Stravinsky. According to minutes of the meeting, Walt went on to ask, quote, was there ever anything written on which we might build something of a prehistoric theme with prehistoric animals? <laughs> you know, dinosaurs. <laughs> I just read a book about dinosaurs. Really interesting. Uh, Deems Taylor suggested Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which was played, to which Walt said, quote, this is marvelous. It would be perfect for prehistoric animals. There would be something terrific in dinosaurs, flying lizards, and prehistoric monsters. There could be beauty in the settings. <laughs> Man has dinosaurs on the brain. Apparently. Uh, Dick Humor told a different story of this encounter where Stokowski referred to the Rite of Spring by its French title, Le Sacre de Printemps, to which Walt res- responded, The Sock? <laughs> You long hair. That's right. Uh, The Rite of Spring was a groundbreaking composition in the music world when it debuted in 1913, three years after the Firebird Suite. The ballet was based on pagan rituals concerning the arrival of the spring season and the mixture of the subject matter and the revolutionary use of dissonance, rhythm, and tonality caused what some termed a riot at its debut. Uh, this piece was so controversial that it wasn't performed again until the 1920s, but had become a touchstone for modern composers by the time Walt was discussing its inclusion in Fantasia. And, you know, 
a lot of film composers stand on the shoulders of Stravinsky for sure. Oh my gosh, yes. Absolutely. It's like the birth of film music along with like Dvorak and some other people we'll discuss. Uh, Stravinsky was born in Russia, the son of an opera singer. And though he was encouraged to go into law, he found his interests in music and became a protege of Rimsky-Korsakov. After some initial successes, he decided to leave Russia, which was en route to becoming the Soviet Union in the late 1910s. And neither country, uh, Russia or the Soviet Union, honored copyright. And Stravinsky was suffering financially due to no royalties coming in. Hmm. He moved to Switzerland and then to Paris, where he stayed at the home of Coco Chanel, who was also responsible for that revival of the Rite of Spring in the 1920s. Oh, that's bizarre. In the late 1930s, three weeks after Germany invaded Poland and Europe fell under the shadow of another war, Stravinsky moved to the United States, stopping in New York before settling in Los Angeles, where a pocket of intellectual artists had landed and begun to form a circle. Stravinsky spent a lot of time with British writer Aldous Huxley and began to consider composing for the growing medium of film. Uh, One of the first offers given to Stravinsky during this period was for the use of Rite of Spring in Fantasia. And when Stravinsky visited the studio, he was photographed with Walt pouring stoically over the score and laughing it up with Walt and choreographer George Balanchine as they held a model of a pterodactyl over their heads. So again, (laughs) Walt with the dinosaurs. (laughs) Guys, guys, have you heard about dinosaurs? They are (laughs) awesome. But all smiles from Stravinsky in that one. Uh, According to various accounts, the mood in these pictures would make a lot of sense. According to Walt, after the 1939 meeting in the studio where Stravinsky was shown, quote, the first roughed out drawings, Stravinsky said he was excited about the possibilities of the film. And in fact, Disney claimed that when he was, quote, shown the finished product, he emerged from the projection room visibly moved. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. It's nice to know he, he was appreciated. Well... Hold on, my friend. Disney set the subject matter as the creation of Earth itself somewhat controversial for the time. I still can't believe they did this. Uh, Leading to a battle between a Tyrannosaurus Rex and a Stegosaurus. Uh, This is out there, man. Yeah. I love this animation. I I mean, this this piece. So good and so ahead of its time. Like you said, uh, sort of ahead of its time in depicting these things yeah and this is another one like we mentioned bambi earlier this is another one where they are trying to go for the realism meaning yeah they're just trying to go as real as they can get and it's pretty impressive especially with the science at the time i mean you know it's just wild uh to think about how little time people knew about dinosaurs well yeah and how little people knew about in like anything in the cosmos or right, deep right. time or I, there was so much that wasn't known in it in this period so it's it makes it even more remarkable well the main issue stravinsky would have was the handling of the score uh, according to his later account quote i remember someone offering me a score and when i said i had my own the someone saying but it's all changed it was indeed The order of the pieces had been shuffled and the most difficult of them eliminated. Though this didn't help the musical performance, which was execrable. 
I will say nothing about the visual compliment, for I do not wish to criticize an unresisting imbecility, but the musical point of view, the film involved a dangerous misunderstanding. Yikes. Shavinsky's not happy, man. No. Uh, this disagreement played itself out in the papers in 1960 as Walt and Stravinsky went at each other in the Los Angeles Times. Uh, Stravinsky claimed he was offered $5,000 and claimed the offer was, quote, accompanied by a gentle warning that if permission were withheld, the music would be used anyway due to that tricky lack of copyright. For his part, Walt blamed the falling out on, quote, intellectuals and their criticism as what, quote, turned them against us. Uh, Disney also claimed they paid $10,000 for the rights. So go at it, boys. Uh, 20 years later. I know. Uh, by this time, Stravinsky had used his American citizenship to copyright some of his works and had written new ones. Walt had moved on to theme parks, as we said, and bigger dreams. But it seemed like this wound was one that would still flare up. Uh, you know, Walt didn't like the long hairs picking on him. Apparently not. He still had those. Still had those wounds from uh, being rejected. I guess from this world that he really admired. Right. Uh, it's it's such a shame that this partnership didn't end up working out for both parties. Uh, as this piece and setting of it in Fantasia, I think, are just really incredible and a bold artistic statement by the Disney studio. I mean, I I get so excited about this segment of Fantasia and the kind of, you know, it's just a complete breadth of scope of it is amazing. And using this piece of music, which is just uh, really inspiring as well mm -hmm. and exposed you know an entire audience that might not otherwise know this piece that's right that's right uh, whether or not stravinsky would have wanted further association with disney seemed doubtful but disney would finally get around to using that firebird suite and fantasia in the finale to its sequel fantasia 2000 which is incredible yeah, that's so good so so good uh, Sergei Prokofiev was another Russian who would go on to become one of the major composers of the 20th century. Raised in Russia, he experienced success before fleeing his homeland in 1918 for better opportunities abroad, as Russia was involved in revolutions so around the same time. Uh, Prokofiev landed in San Francisco and continued to work in the United States and Western Europe until the Depression sent him back to Russia in 1936. Hmm. 1936 uh, was dubbed the, quote, year of the child in Stalin's Soviet Union. Uh, according to writer Katriona Kelly, quote, the Soviet state placed children's affairs at the heart of its political legitimacy, emphasizing that children were treated with greater care than they were anywhere else in the world. From 1936 especially, the notion that children owed their perfectly happy childhood to the Soviet leadership was to become one of the central tenets of propaganda. The, oh the year of the child. So uh, Prokofiev set about to write a new piece of music with children in mind, titled Peter and the Wolf. According to him, quote, there was an obvious need for children's music. And in the spring of 1936, I undertook the composition of an orchestral tale for children, Peter and the Wolf, to a text of my own. What was important to me was not so much the tale itself, but that the children listened to the music, for which the story was only a pretext. 
I composed the music roughly in one week and another for the orchestration. So that makes me angry. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no and his kidding. faculty. <laughs> Just banged it out. Oh, boy. Yeah. Prokofiev thought the medium of film rather lowbrow until the 1930s, but through various associations, he began to change his way of thinking and considered writing for film. Uh, his collaboration with Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein, who we mentioned earlier also, would bear fruit later in the decade and beyond. Uh, incidentally, Eisenstein considered Walt Disney the most interesting American director. So he, he was effusive in his Walt Disney Very effusive. I mean, he wrote so many essays about <laughs> Walt Disney. It's wild. He loved some Walt. Uh, for his part, Prokofiev went to Hollywood on what would be a final tour of the United States in 1938. He saw Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs in Denver, of all places, and was so amazed he insisted on seeing it again the next day. Uh, this movie was seen as a major turning point for Prokofiev, really opening his mind to working in film, uh, which he would do much in years later. Some, I mean, like Lieutenant Kihei was for film, which I couldn't believe. Just, really? Yeah. Uh, wild. Shortly thereafter, he arrived in Los Angeles and visited Walt Disney in his walking way home. Prokofiev wrote home that he had, quote, been in the house of Mickey Mouse's papa. That is the man who first thought up the idea of sketching him. So he was stoked. It was at Walt's home that Prokofiev presented him with the concept and music to Peter and the Wolf on a piano that Walt had. That moment was reenacted years later on the anthology show in 1957 with Walt presenting and a stand-in for Prokofiev playing the piano. Let's hear that. <laughs> Not very good, is it? You know... Seeing this old piano reminded me of the time when it played an important part in one of the studio's most exciting adventures. One of our great modern composers, the late Sergei Prokofiev, played his musical fantasy for me on this very piano. That was a long time ago, back in 1938. As I remember, Fantasia was in production, and we were working on Pinocchio, too. The days were filled with meetings and story conferences, and we were all working under pressure to meet our picture deadline. One day, my friend Rudy Polk, vice president of an important talent agency, called me. I just around the rock down there before Jim Hello. comes into the scene. Yes, yes, he's here just with the raw tumble. Yeah. Walt? Yeah. Rudy Polk. Rudy! Listen, I know you're busy with Pinocchio, but I have a man here, a composer, I think you should meet. Well, Rudy, we're still fighting the story and we haven't got around to the music yet. Walt. The composer is Sergei Prokofiev. And he had you in mind when he wrote this new composition. Sergei Prokofiev. That's right. And he says you're the only man to do his Peter and the Wolf for films. Well, that's wonderful, Rudy. When can you bring him out to the studio? How's today? Fine. I'll be seeing you. Good. Remember, this was back in 1938. And we were in our old studio and we were terribly crowded for space. So when Mr. Prokofiev arrived and wanted to play for me, I had to scratch around to find a piano. Here's a room. I'm afraid it isn't much for piano, though. Don't worry, Walt. It'll do. To make matters worse, 
Mr. Prokofiev spoke very little English, and of course, I spoke no Russian. a musical theme. The one he just played was that of Peter the Boy. And now the wolf. fingers flew over the keys of our battered old piano. How his face glistened with perspiration as he concentrated on the music. And all the time I could see pictures. I could see his lovely fantasy coming to life on the screen. This is really one of the incredible moments on the uh, Disneyland TV show. <laughs> I love the episodes where they have like a flashback to like 20 years earlier yeah. and Walt, Walt is Walt. The de-aged uh, Walt. Yeah. Yeah. Now they need to deep fake him. <laughs> deep That's fake funny. technology to, uh, yeah, this is how it was me and the boys. Yeah. One of those, they de-age, uh, Oliver Wallace and it's really bizarre. Yeah, uh, they even like go into detail of like we got this wig that looks more like you from back right. then, and so so strange. They but like go into detail. This one it's funny because Walt like just puts on a big collared shirt and uh, like uh, <laughs> his little like ascot and is sitting there. Uh, lovely to imagine this happening in real time, though. I mean, oh, totally. These two sitting down to talk about this. Uh, Peter and the Wolf was considered for Fantasia, which they were working on at the time, but it was eventually shelved and would stay there until 1946 when it would debut as a short in Make Mine Music, another one of those package films. Unfortunately, by this time, Prokofiev was behind the Iron Curtain and we would never hear his thoughts on Disney's interpretation of his work or experience any further collaboration, which is a real shame because I feel like of all the composers, uh, Prokofiev would have been an incredible collaborator with Disney. You know, his music now sounds like, I mean, John Williams borrows a lot from Prokofiev. A lot of it sounds like 
Spielberg or something, you know, mm-hmm. to me, uh, incredible. But imagining him working on a Disney film would have been oh, that would wild, be incredible. Yeah. And, uh, you know, just so sad that we, like, we don't know. I, I don't even know if he even got to see it. Yeah. You know, nobody not knows, knowing what yeah. he thought about it right. is, is a real shame. So it's very sad that, uh, he was forced to go back because he could have done a whole lot. Yes. Yes. Well, what did go into Fantasia was an incredible piece of animation set to Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. I mean, one of the real high points. Mm-hmm. An interesting historical footnote here was that the ballet was not as beloved then as it is today. Indeed, Deems Taylor points out in the film saying it, quote, wasn't much of a success and nobody performs it nowadays. Oh, that's so weird. It is. Uh, so this version of the Nutcracker was most likely new to audiences' ears. And only a few years after Fantasia's release, the first production of the complete ballet would be performed. And the Nutcracker would arrive in style in the eyes of the American public as late as 1954, when the New York Ballet would perform it under the direction of George Balanchine, who visited the Disney studio years earlier with Igor Stravinsky. More cuts from Fantasia included the works of Sergei Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff, like Prokofiev, left Russia in 1917, sounding familiar, after his estate was seized by the communists, and toured the world, taking time to take up residence in San Francisco as well. Eventually, he too would find his way to Los Angeles, as doctors advised him due to his failing health. Before his death, Rachmaninoff would visit the Disney studio and meet Walt, along with Vladimir Horowitz, himself considered one of the great pianists of all time. This blows my mind, because you think of Rachmaninoff as being so much older. Yes! Um, But he was there in 1942 for a screening of Bambi. Uh, Oh, man! No doubt Bambi stood on the work of a lot of these composers and the music it presented. But perhaps the greatest joy Rachmaninoff had was seeing Mickey play one of his pieces. In the short The Opry House, Mickey dons his now trademark white gloves for the very first time to play Rachmaninoff's C-sharp minor prelude. He also has long hair, Michael, I might add, he puts back. (laughs) Mickey goes long hair. That's right. Uh, Rachmaninoff was reported to have said, quote, I have heard my inevitable prelude played well by some of the best pianists, cruelly massacred by others, but no performance has moved me as much as that of the great maestro Mickey Mouse. One doesn't have to look back to the 1930s to see Disney rubbing elbows with high culture. No, indeed, just a few years ago, Disney was making the rounds in the long hair circuit with our dear leader, Michael Eisner, particularly in the field of architecture. 
The first week after he arrived at Disney and took over the chairman and CEO role, Michael Eisner had an idea that was, well, so him. (laughs) Eisner envisioned a hotel in the shape of Mickey Mouse, straddling Riverside Drive adjacent to the Burbank studio in the lot that was originally slated for the Mickey Mouse Park idea. According to accounts from a meeting with Disney designers Marty Sklar and Wing Chow, it was a signal to the Imagineers that someone with bold ideas was at the helm and that things would never be the same. Eisner saw that, quote, architecture could create a business market. Kids in Kansas City were going to tell their parents they wanted to go stay in the hotel shaped like Mickey Mouse. When Chow asked if it would be like the Colossus of Rhodes, Eisner reportedly said, yeah, straddling the street. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> the Mickey Classic Hotel. Classic Eisner catchphrase. Hey, Ma, can we go stay in the Mickey Mouse-shaped hotel in Burbank? <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, kids love going to Burbank. <laughs> they heard about it on Carson. Can't wait to go. We gotta have a Mickey Mouse hotel going to be built but uh but chow later said quote it gave me the signal right away that he wanted to fire the longest shot possible right away i knew he wanted to push us to the edge (laughs) true enough (laughs) alas this very strange project would maybe fortunately never make its way off the drawing boards of eisner's mind but as we've mentioned previously almost immediately eisner sought to redesign two giant hotels slated for development in lake buena vista that would eventually become the swan and dolphin eisner had been raised in new york and exposed to a lot of culture and his upbringing as east coast elites uh you know 1964 world's fair and whatnot Indeed, he initially set out to become a playwright instead of an executive, which I always find interesting. Yeah, imagine that. (laughs) A family friend who lived in the same building as the Eisners when Michael was growing up, Victor Granz, served on the board of the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. Granz became a private architecture instructor to Eisner, even traveling with him to Europe to study. What? I know. Look at this. In Rome, he was walking the streets of Rome with this guy. Uh, When Eisner approached Granz for ideas of architects to work with Disney, he recommended Philip Johnson, an established architect who was the first winner of the Pritzker Prize, an award handed out annually to one architect of note. Johnson's career was full of achievements, both as a modernist and postmodern architect, and was one of the most celebrated architects of the 1980s. The other name Grants gave was Michael Graves, a Princeton professor who was younger and less experienced. Eisner by chance ran into both Graves and Johnson soon thereafter at the New York City Ballet. Fate would have it that during intermission as the three parties huddled, Johnson didn't seem to know who Eisner was and couldn't hear over the noise in the room, and so he left Eisner and Graves to evidently get a Perrier. And so, one of the most prolific partnerships during this period was born. And Michael Graves loved to tell that story. <laughs> it's just like a, a flip of the coin, basically. That's right. And we wind up with the swan and dolphin. Oh, well, Eisner sent the message that Disney needed to get more creative in the designs of their hotels. With the precedent of Welton Beckett and Associates designing the contemporary and Polynesian resorts on Disney property, Hotels seemed like an immediate opportunity for outside architects to provide the new spark Eisner was looking for. 
Eisner called existing designs for the Tishman hotels at Lake Buena Vista horrendous and would later claim, quote, it costs the same to do well as badly. It's exactly the same price if you build 1,200 ugly rooms. Hmm. That's kind of like the uh, Herb Ryman quote, like good good taste costs no more, whatever right, it is, or right. bad taste costs no more. Yeah, same thing. Eisner set about to lean into what he termed entertainment architecture, turning away from some of the more modernist architecture from the 1960s and 70s he once called despicable. Quote, we're not about safe deposit boxes. We're in the entertainment business. Right on, man. That's right. In postmodern architecture, Eisner found a good match for what he was looking for in a style that didn't take itself too seriously and had fun with classical forms while retooling them into something entertaining and provocative. And his work with Michael Graves on the Swan and Dolphin served as a thesis statement for this direction. Eisner would say, quote, we're Disney. We've got to have the biggest, the best, the most tasteful. Hmm. <laughs> Initially, Eisner paired Graves with Robert Venturi, himself one of the early definers of postmodern architecture, but both begged off the collaboration and turned it instead into a competition. Eisner compared the teaming of Graves and Venturi to his work in pairing up George Lucas and Steven Spielberg for Raiders of the Lost Ark in his previous role at Paramount. Indeed, the movie analogy was never far from Eisner's mind. He was quoted as saying, quote, You have to be careful, because unlike the movies, if the building is a dog, if it's terrible, you can't hide it. You have to go on looking at it every day, reminding yourself of your own bad taste. Michael, what's what say you, Michael? <laughs> that is very true. Um, in fact, I've said a similar thing recently about you know uh, certain buildings. It's it's uh, once it's in concrete, it's there to stay. Safe deposit boxes say you, Michael Eisner. Hmm. Better do it right. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Well, speaking of George Lucas, Eisner also thought that executing this bold vision would pay dividends in other creative sectors of the company. Quote, George Lucas will see Michael Graves' hotel and he'll want to do movies for us. Also, <laughs> our own people will have to be educated. Our own people will have to say every time they do something, am I doing it with style? Am I doing it with taste? <laughs> hmm, this, uh, this Dolphin Hotel is interesting. Maybe, uh... Maybe I will make a sequel or a prequel <laughs> for you. Uh, well, according to Marty Sklar's account of a meeting with builder John Tishman, who was completely frustrated with the development and cost of the two new hotels, Eisner reportedly said, quote, John, I'm 44 years old. I've already made more money than I ever dreamed of. Now I want to be on the cover of Time magazine. By using the most controversial architects in the country, I will establish Disney as a serious patron of the arts. Eisner's just, just an amazing person. <laughs> he just goes, he goes hard, man. I don't, uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting goal considering the company you're running, but he did his best <laughs> yeah, to. I to run Disney, <laughs> but I don't want to be on the company. He should have just gone to like. Maybe that's why they had the thing at uh, Disney MGM where you could get your like face on the cover of a magazine. Ah, that, he Maybe that, that was the inspiration yeah. for this. Well, as the Swan and Dolphin came together, Eisner set his sights towards Europe and in the Euro Disney development would aim to ratchet up his architectural bona fides even higher. 
On Easter Sunday, 1988, a group of the most famous architects in the United States met to discuss plans to develop the site plan and the hotels for the Euro Disney Resort. Led by Robert A.M. Stern, who once designed the Eisner family's apartment in New York, the rest of the cohort included Michael Graves, Robert Venturi, Frank Gehry, and Stanley Tigerman. Eventually, Wing Chow would consult with the list even further afield, calling even more architects into the fray and having those who were willing pitch their concepts to Eisner over four days at his home in Bel Air. By the end, Antoine Predock joined Graves and Stern along with French architect Antoine Grumbach on hotel duties. Frank Gehry would be tasked with designing the shopping district, and Michael, uh, evidently, Predock's plans were so big they had to take them outside and unroll them on the front lawn of the Bel Air house. Oh, good Lord! <laughs> this is great. Uh, you think big, I like this. This is great. We're going big. Well, as we discussed before, it's widely recognized that the building of all the hotel inventory was one of the true causes of Euro Disney's financial woes that would plague it right off the bat. But uh, the work was certainly creative. You got to give it that. Uh, particularly notable was Predoc's Hotel Santa Fe, which he stubbornly referred to as the Happy Trails Motel, which I, <laughs> I really love. That's way better. These architects would bristle at times at Disney's push to theme spaces. Indeed, Predoc took on Disney executives on site, saying, quote, For me, the value of architecture is something other than overt theming. If the architecture speaks for itself, it shouldn't have to be narrated. Oh, those long hairs. Well, yeah. And though he claimed it didn't need to be narrated, Predoc wrote a brochure for the hotel <laughs> explaining uh, its story and various trails uh, named the Trail of Artifacts, Monuments, Legends, Water, and Infinite Space. Mm. And don't forget the so-called uh, cactus and bondage that Predoc surrounded <laughs> by a glass case. Uh, he famously got into an argument with the Disney brass about the facade of the hotel, which was designed as a blank drive-in movie screen. Uh, most likely, Eisner insisted on there being an image there, and so it was decided that Clint Eastwood would grace the screen to welcome guests to the Hotel Santa Fe. As Predoc said, quote, who wins when you have a fight with Michael Eisner? Nobody. Despite, <laughs> right. Despite Predoc calling working for Disney guerrilla theater, uh, he signed on to design the Mediterranean Resort in Florida, which we discussed with Bob Holland on episode 18. You should check that out because that was an interesting project that never got off the drawing board. Also back in Florida, Disney was working with Japanese architect Arata Izazaki on a Team Disney building. Already the Disney studio in Burbank was being transformed with Michael Graves' iconic Team Disney Burbank building, which resembled a Greek temple with pillars held up by the seven dwarves, a true thesis in postmodern architecture. Always uh, funny to see this in architectural, you know, <laughs> textbooks or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it was in all of, like the journals at the time and mag. I mean, he got his magazines. That's right. for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, such a weird building. Yes. Well, with Isazaki, Disney found an architect that would push the company even further into artistic expression through architecture. Originally, this building was slated for the lake shared with Caribbean Beach, but once the design was finalized, Disney moved the building over to Lake Buena Vista, where it perhaps fit in better and would be seen by more people. 
The result was stunning, resembling an ocean liner constructed of cubes sitting on a lake with a massive tower in the middle containing the world's largest sundial and stones and quotes by everyone from Einstein to Donald Duck. This building would garner wide praise from architectural circles and earn Disney its first major architectural award with the 1992 American Institute of Architects Award. This building is uh, interesting. I, I got to go in it once. It's really something. I mean, it's bold. Yeah, I um It's funny. We're talking about this now because I actually drove, went up circuitously driving by it the other day up close and just thinking, man, that is... That is a really weird building. A, <laughs> that, that is, is a something statement. else. Yeah. Uh, imagining it being by the Caribbean. Yes. <laughs> What's that about? I don't know. Well, by the time that building opened, Disney was in the midst of the so-called Disney decade and building with their architects all over the world. But the height of this association was no doubt Disney's town of celebration built on the Florida property. In this development, Disney would work with some familiar faces, and Eisner and Chow would bring in some new collaborators, some of whom had been bandied about for quite some time. Italian architect Aldo Rossi would design Celebration Place. Robert Stern would help draw up the master plan and design the hospital, Michael Graves the post office, Robert Venturi the bank, Caesar Pelli the town theater, bring it back folks, oh, RIP man, and Graham Gund the hotel. Philip Johnson, he of the Perrier at inter Intermission, would come on board to design Celebration's Town Hall with its many columns. Mm -hmm. And Charles Moore, who was called the father of postmodernism, would design the Welcome Center, which is kind of a funky little stairway tower, kind of looked like the Winchester House. Yeah, it's a cool building. It is. Uh, Moore was actually one of the first academics to truly examine the impact of Disneyland on design once saying Disneyland must be regarded as the most important single piece of construction in the West in the past several decades. Hmm. And uh, Disney would use that quote like the, uh, the other one, the, the Rouse quote. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Disney would develop more buildings on their Florida property, even down to fire stations and gas stations designed by Robert Venturi. It was, a, I mean, every time we'd go down there, they were building more stuff that was yeah. wacky, you know? And it was all, always like, what is this going to be? Right. Because it was always crazy, something really wild. And they built that Reedy Creek building. They built all, and of course, all the signage kind of goes in with this, uh, they, they're now they're they're just lost it but all that design with the purple and all that is very postmodern and mm -hmm. zany it seemed everything that was built was built with this bold vision over in anaheim frank gary continued his association with disney building the team disney anaheim building as well as the anaheim ice complex that's a pretty cool building but uh, team disney anaheim is, is an odd one yeah um through all these projects, Eisner was involved to the smallest detail in revision through revision. According to Robert Stern, quote, he's not an architect or an architect manque, he said, but he's a knowledgeable client, the rarest commodity you can find. He's very visual and imaginatively visual. Predock said that he heard from Eisner more than he heard from people while designing their private homes. <laughs> Uh, I yeah, believe it. Eisner, there are a lot of stories of him, uh, you know, wanting this and that, you know, be, don't take yourself too seriously. Go for it. You know, all this stuff. 
By the end of the decade, Disney's collection of buildings designed by world-renowned architects surpassed any other company to the point that Michael Eisner and his company were lauded as patrons of the arts, Michael. He did it. Time Magazine claimed, (laughs) Disney has become the premier patron of architecture in the late 20th century. Well, yeah, I mean, when you look at just that collection in celebration alone, I mean, that's got to be a record for the most name architects in just like a you know, half quarter square mile. Oh yeah. And you think about now, uh, you know, that downtown, they sold off the downtown and it's just like, (laughs) all that stuff's just there, you know, and they're kind of the rest of celebrations kind of like a development, but yeah, all these great works just sitting there. It's so weird. Yeah. Uh, The New York times declared Mr. Eisner is playing a role more like arts patrons or Imperial business tycoons of the past than today's cautious faceless corporate donors. One that ventures toward the social engineering of the company's celebration residential community in Florida, as well as artistic pursuits. New York design critic Suzanne Stevens said yesterday, every architect in America dreamed of building office towers for enlightened developers. Today, they want to work for Michael Eisner. (laughs) She's loving it. Pulitzer Prize winner Aaron J. Kernis proclaimed, you think back on European history and support the churches gave to art and music and later spilled over to the Medici's. What Eisner and Disney are doing has the potential to be the new Medici's for our time. If done in the right way, for the best of reasons, it could help new culture flower when what we're seeing is this overwhelming junk culture. (laughs) Several times he was compared to a Medici, which cracks me up. I love it. George (laughs) Lucas will love it. Well, and although Eisner did look ever the part of Medici, uh, having commissioned two symphonies to celebrate the coming millennium, having greenlit Fantasia 2000, the long-awaited sequel to Fantasia, and standing with his portfolio of revolutionary architecture, he took the moment to play Walt a bit with this quote. I don't see high art or low art, he said. If you're an ice skating clown at an ice show, you're probably the best skater in the arena. To be broadly commercial, you have to be broadly talented. So nothing we do now is inconsistent with what Walt did in his early pioneering work in animation or with Fantasia or with working with Westinghouse to adapt the technology of his day to his theme parks. Oh, man. I mean, when he got it, he got it. He didn't always get it, but man, he got it sometimes. If you're an ice skating clown at an ice show, (laughs) too good. Young Eisner tearing up at the ice skating clown. Too good. Oh, it's so it's so beautiful. Uh, by the turn of the century, Eisner's reign at Disney was almost done, but one project was coming to completion that had run almost the entire time of his tenure as chairman at the Walt Disney Company. In 2003, the Walt Disney Concert Hall opened in downtown Los Angeles. Started by a gift from Lillian Disney in 1987, the hall would go through many revisions and starts and stops, including gifts by the Roy Disney family and the Disney company itself before it would see the light of day. Designed by Frank Gehry, it would immediately be an icon of Los Angeles and become a recognizable building around the world. Though it wasn't built by Disney, certainly it belongs in the family of structures from this era. After Eisner left the company, his love for architecture continued into his next act. Fresh out of the boardroom, Eisner launched a show on the CNBC network called 
Conversations with Michael Eisner. <laughs> Not satisfied with just any set, Eisner commissioned none other than Frank Gehry to design a backdrop for his talk show. According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, I felt he would have an aesthetic eye that would be sympathetic to the kind of show I'm doing, Mr. Eisner, long a patron of architecture, says a Mr. Gary. The architect agreed to do it, gratis. I told him I'd do the set if he promised not to wear a tie. Hello, I'm Michael Eisner. It's the Disney tradition that in everything we do, we tell a story. That's why to us, putting up a building is like making a movie. But unlike a movie where there's time to get to know the characters and plot, the building has to tell a story the instant you look at it. It has to do a good job, because the building will be standing long after those who built it are gone. And that's the power of architecture. It can spark emotion and whisk you away. So the next time you look at a building, look again. There may be more to it than meets the eye. Welcome to the wonderful world of Disney. When we spoke to Tim Delaney for our recent town hall interview, I wanted to talk to him about a notable individual who had many Disney ties over the years and with whom Tim became close friends. I'm speaking about the legendary Ray Bradbury. I asked Tim how he met Bradbury and what he could tell us about Bradbury's involvement in Epcot. As I mentioned before, I started at Art Center College of Design, you know, way back long ago. And and one of the first weeks that I was at Art Center, um, they had an evening where Ray Bradbury came in and spoke. And this was way back, you know, in probably 1970 or something like that. And I was completely amazed because Ray had all this energy. And here he was a very, a very famous fantasy science fiction writer. And, um, and I was really kind of very happy that I happened to be in this place where I could hear people like that. And so, you know, that was, it, it kind of stuck with me and uh, I was really proud of, you know, I was really thrilled and, and, and his energy was really super positive. And then let's jump ahead. So when I started at, at Imagineering, um, you know, he was in that year, that first year that I was there, he was always kind of around the place and he was sitting um, and he'd worked with Marty and John Hinch and he would actually do a lot of story development. And in fact, um, in the early days of Epcot, what happened is they, uh, the Disney company put together, invited, you know, corporations invited to this large meeting down in, in Orlando to kind of, the, the, they brought in all of these corporate sponsors to actually kind of pitch the idea of Epcot. And they brought Ray Bradbury in to speak. And I have a copy of his speech. 
um, which I was able to acquire somehow. Um, but anyway, this was 1977. It was hosted by the astronaut Gordon Cooper, and they brought in all these major corporations, and Ray was at his best. I mean, he was just unbelievable. He was challenging people to, like, really grab onto Walt's dream and, and, um, and, and to really follow through on this whole dream of Epcot and the Imagineers could do it and all that. Well, the interesting thing is Ray was always kind of a, he, he, he really didn't define a certain category of writing. He was actually, um, you know, he, he called himself a fantasy writer, science fiction writer, but he was also very, very involved in, you know, city planning. And the fact that he lived in Los Angeles, he was really quite um, intrigued about how to solve the problems of, of transportation here. And he kept going to the city council to say, get Walt Disney's, you know, monorail. That's the way to solve everything. So, um, but although he was very, very fascinated with, you know, transportation and rocket ships and flights to the moon and Mars and beyond, um, Ray never drove a car hmm. entirely. Really? When, when he was a young man, um, he witnessed a very serious car accident and he refused to drive a car. So what he would do is that he would, when he traveled around Los Angeles as a young man, what he did is that he would actually use his roller skates or his bicycle or whatever. So I know a lot about Ray because I'm going to tell you a story. If I've never mentioned this to you before, you'll be, I mean, I, even though I, this is something that I actually am very proud of. So, um, I didn't really directly work with Ray. He was always dealing kind of in the story department, you know, a story group with, with uh, John Hinch and, 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 um, and Marty Scalar. Um, but we got all the way through Epcot and, um, oh, and, and well, excuse me, let me finish that story up first. The reason I'm just going to tell you that. So this trip to Florida, when, when the Walt Disney Company bought Ray a ticket on an airplane to fly to Orlando, it was the first time he had ever been on an airplane. Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a guy who talks about, you know, traveling through the stars. And so he had to go down there. And so he did. And, you know, he, and that was the moment he started traveling. He never drove a car again, but uh, ever. Uh, but when he'd come to see me or, you know, come to Imagineering, he always had a car service driving over. So anyway, so that was, I didn't finish that thought, but I wanted to bring that up. So anyway, um, because I remembered him and he was involved in, in Epcot so clearly and so involved in his energy, I think he wrote the script for Spaceship Earth and all that. So in 1986, I decided uh, that I would reach out to Ray because here I was going to work on um, just getting started for Disneyland Paris. And I was, you know, the, the whole theme of a new Tomorrowland, and we were going to develop this whole theme, which was relating to the great visionaries of Europe, you know, because we were going to France, we wanted to make sure that we had a, a product that was, that was um, you know, something that, appeal, that appealed to the European audience. So I thought, well, Ray, you know, he's, you know, he's very well spoken about everything, and he loves the idea of, you know, I wanted to bring our present day visionary and because I wanted to work, you know, work with him um, so that we could actually work with the great European visionaries. So I brought Ray in and we would have brainstorming sessions and he helped us with the Orbitron. And, and it, you know, then he'd get inspired once in a while and he'd say, well, is there a typewriter here? And he'd run off. And <laughs> so, so I started at that point in time, you know, just working with him. And then um, one day, you know, he was going home, the car was going to pick him up. And I said, Ray, I'd like to come over and talk with you. You know, it's like, 
you know, he goes, yeah, sure. Here's my number. Call me up, you know, and I and over the years, because I was traveling back and forth to Paris at that time, you know, once in a while I run into him at the airport. I ran into him in New York. You know, he was flying to Paris. He loved Paris. You know, it was great. So just so that you know, <laughs> I started going to visit Ray like once, I would say every four to five weeks, you know, when I was in town, right? And so we would go and I'd go to his house and we would just talk about, we didn't talk about his stories. We ended up talking about everything else in the world, everything about his, I, I know every story that he went through. Anyway, so this process of me going to Ray's house, you know, every four to five weeks when I was in town, went on for 24 years. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would go and I would talk with him and I'd call him up and he'd say, yeah, come on over. And I'd spend no more than an hour, like just about an hour. And it ranged from, you know, him sitting and like, you know, he'd tell me the stories how he met Walt Disney, met Walt Disney at, at Bullock's Welshire down on Welshire Boulevard. Hmm. And, uh, he, you know, he said, yeah, I'm walking through uh, Bullock's Wilshire and there is, I see with a, a load, armload of packages was Walt Disney. So he walks up to Walt and he says, Walt, you don't know me, but I'm Ray Bradbury and I want to meet you. And he goes, Walt says, well, Ray, come over to the studio tomorrow. We'll have lunch. You know, so they they met. And and of course, his Walt secretary said, don't keep him more than an hour. And they ended up spending three hours together. And Walt said, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but I heard every story. I mean, Walt's or excuse me, Ray's story of going to Disneyland with Charles Lawton and they took over one of the jungle cruise boats and Charles Lawton was the captain Bly and, you know, <laughs> and, and all these stories. And, and even to the, even toward the end, you know, when I, you know, his house was just kind of amazing house. I mean, it was this house over in Chevy Hills and it was on three different levels and it was all stepped up a different, different split uh, level house. And the third lowest level, and there was another steep basement to that, was this like cave and that's where he would do his writing. And he wrote every day. He told me he did 5,000, he wrote 5,000 words a day, which I find incredibly challenging. Good. Um, yes, really? But uh, he just wrote and he just wrote. And I, I will tell you that he was a little bit challenging when someone would know. I mean, I took Marty Scolar over there. I took, there's a lot of people who wanted to go and, you know, I had to kind of lead them through and, tell them how to do it, but how to, how to get to his house and how to maneuver through. But, um, but Ray was really quite special. I, sometimes somebody would say, I understand you, you know, Ray, can you, can you, can I, can I go over to his house? Can you? And I'm like, yeah, okay. If you sure you really want to. And so like, <laughs> there's a reason for that because Ray was, you know, he's very famous for a guy who's, who's more self-taught. And he said, he really, he, he really spent all of his time. He was educated in the, in the library system of the United States of America. And Andrew Carnegie was his, you know, patron saint because Andrew Carnegie, you know, put oh, the money great. up to, yeah. to, to build all these libraries for people and educated people that way. So um, I remember my, I won't say who it is, someone I knew wanted to go with me and who was in school at USC and was taking writing classes. So Ray was always famous for like, I'm not famous. He, I think he really, he, he really, it came across sometimes a little harsh, but I, and I, and I re, kind of regretted a little bit of that, but he would just say to someone like, what are you doing? Well, I want to be a writer. And what do you, and he'd say, well, what are you doing? You know, and he goes, well, I'm going to school. He goes, why are you going to school? 
you want to be a yeah. writer, you should just go write. Yeah. It's like, but anyway, it was such a treat. And, and I will say even uh, toward the end when he was very bedridden, I would go over and see him and um, you know, it was, it was hard. It was hard to do, but I would ask him how, you know, what should we do? And he wanted me to read to him. Oh, wow. And I did. And what I read to him were his stories. Oh man. That's and else. he would just lay there in bed, you know, I'd see a smile on his face and he just kind of, he, he just, he was so positive. He was such a creative energy source and very aggressive, you know, very aggressive, like go, go after them and, you know, make sure you, you know, I mean, his speech that he gave to Epcot, you know, uh, about Epcot to these, these corporations it was um, really quite interesting because <laughs> he was challenging them. Come on, let's go. We got to get behind these guys. I mean, he believe, we got to believe in this. We got to, you know, he was he, he had he and I shared uh, some very similar uh, beliefs about the future. Mm-hmm. I am definitely he is not, nor was I ever a very dystopian kind of dark side of the future kind of guy. Right. I never had, that. but he um, he was a real inspiration, you know, to me. And so I. I, I, you know, I just, I, 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 I can't even tell you what we talked about. We just talked about everything in the world. We talked about, I heard all of his stories, who he met and how he met them and, you know, who is, how he got started with certain individuals, people, you know, he was close with Gene Roddenberry and he was close with um, Rod Serling and Rod Serling. He told me to start Rod Serling came to him like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And he goes, well, look at, why don't you go down and get some of these, crazy fantastic stories and start you know kind of spin off something there and so that kind of started the whole twilight zone thing he was very close to um stan freeberg you know the very famous um uh, advertising guy and mm-hmm. you know my wife and i went to a uh a, 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 a race favorite holiday was was always halloween so um you know because of halloween tree and all that so uh <laughs> you know, so we went to a Halloween party and Stan Freeberg was there and some other celebrities, but just old, old friends. And it was great. So, you know, one day Ray called me and he said, uh, Tim, I, I got a big favor I want to ask you. I'm like, really? What? He says, you know, I was coming back from West L.A. and it was just about the time, a few days before Halloween. And, um, and he said, uh, <laughs> He said, I came back and I, and I see all these Halloween trees. And, you know, Ray wrote the story, Halloween mm-hmm. tree. It's basically a tree with, you know, jack o and all of it. And he goes, I come back from West L.A. and I'm coming back to my house and I see all these Halloween trees. And I think Disneyland should have its own Halloween tree. And I need you to make this happen. <laughs> so he says, here's what I go, Ray, how can I help? He says, here's what I want. I want to get together with Disney. I want to have a dinner at Club 33 at Disneyland. Naturally. And, and this is when Club 33 was like, I mean, it isn't like Club 33 in the parks now. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> it was really fun. so I'm like, okay, all right, I'll see what I can do. You know, no, 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 you got to make this happen. You got to make this happen. 
So I went down and I went down the hall and talked to Tony Baxter and he's like, you know, you know, maybe I, cause I mean, Tony is like so connected to Disneyland. So they said this, this was unbelievable as a matter of fact, really what happened. And, it, and they say, he said, well, let's get him on the phone. So he calls up the people that come through front 33 and we're on the phone together. And they said, you know, we want to do this thing for Ray Bradbury. And they go, well, you know, we're all booked up. But wait, hold on a second. We have one night open. Really? What night is that? October 31st, Halloween. Give me a break. Wow. Oh, my yeah. God. And they said, hey, listen, if you guys can guarantee 125 seats, you know, sell out, we'll give it to you, you know, but you got to guarantee you're on the hook, you know. So I'm like fretting about this. And Tony's like, oh, let's just put the word out. We sold all 125 seats in about 45 minutes. Yeah, I was oh, about to say. Yeah, yeah I'm not surprised like, by that. And it was, it was, and it was, it was a fun evening. I mean, Ray was getting on in years, and he was, you know, in his wheelchair, you know. But they, they did have uh, Kim Irvine, who was the art director for Disneyland, put together, you know, a Halloween tree. And then years after that, they have a permanent Halloween tree there, and and, and they decorated. For Halloween, you know, so it was really sweet. It was really great, you know. It was he was he. It, it's one of those, um, I, and I don't even know why I did what I did, but I'm so happy I did. And sometimes it was really stressful, like trying to, you know, make these arrangements and you know to get to see him and all that stuff. But um, but you know, if you find people that you have a connection to and their real value, you know, and special. I, I, I'm not, you know, we never got into, he was never really a, 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 what I would consider a big celebrity. He's known in the world. I mean, you know, he'd, he'd go to cities in South America and hundreds of thousands of people would show up because he's part of the curriculum there, you know, so people would read about those things, but, you know, not, you know, in LA, his, he had his own kind of following and people, you never knew who were going to come over, who's going to come over to his house, you know, there'd be always kind of some celebrity there, but, um, but he was just a guy who was truly, truly inspired and inspiring. Ray Bradbury probably needs no introduction to listeners of this podcast. But Bradbury wasn't just a world-famous author, thinker, and futurist. He was also a Disney fan. More to the point, he was a super fan. In fact, of all the respected thinkers to embrace the world of Disney, he might have been the loudest and proudest. Over the years, Bradbury became not only one of the most vocal proponents of the benefits of Walt's work, but he also worked with the company on some very memorable projects. Born in Illinois in 1920, Bradbury's Disney fixation began early. As he said in a 1965 essay, At 12, I owned one of the first Mickey Mouse buttons in Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> At 19, selling newspapers on a street corner... I lived in terror I might be struck by a car and killed before the premiere of Disney's film extravaganza Fantasia. In the last 30 years, I have seen Fantasia 15 times, Snow White 12 times, Pinocchio 8 times. In sum, I was and still am a Disney nut. You had to have one of those Mickey Mouse buttons, man, I guess. What if he had like a ledger in his wallet that he would he would tick off the times he'd seen these films? And no, I wondered that too. Uh, despite this, years later when Disneyland opened, Bradbury initially found himself skeptical. As he put it, I admit I approached Disneyland with many intellectual reservations myself, but these have been banished in my seven visits. Disney makes mistakes. What artist doesn't? But when he flies, he really flies. 
I shall be indebted to him for a lifetime for his ability to let me fly over midnight London, looking down on the fabulous city in his Peter Pan ride. The jungle boat ride, too, is an experience of true delight and wonder. I could go on, but why bother? (laughs) Well, I want to know what she didn't like. I know. Oh, yeah. I wonder that, too. Dumbo. Terrible. (laughs) This commentary was part of a letter to the editor that Bradbury submitted to The Nation magazine in 1958. The magazine had published a story called Disneyland and Las Vegas, which painted an unflattering portrait of Walt's Park, comparing it to Las Vegas and calling it vulgar. And Bradbury had some opinions about that. In his letter, he not only calls the magazine on the carpet for their story, but describes his first Disneyland visit, one that came courtesy of a very unexpected host. Like many intellectuals before me, he later said, I delayed going to Disneyland, having heard it was just too dreadfully middle class. One wouldn't dream of being caught dead there. But finally, a good friend jollied me into my first grand tour of the Magic Kingdom. I went with one of the great children of our time, Charles Lawton. (laughs) Now, if you don't know Charles Lawton, you may not realize how odd this seems. Lawton was an incredibly imposing British actor, maybe best known for playing the tyrannical Captain Bly in Mutiny on the Bounty. Incidentally, he was married to Elsa Lanchester, who aside from playing the Bride of Frankenstein, also had prominent roles in Disney films such as Mary Poppins, That Darn Cat, and Blackbeard's Ghost. One of the great Uh, children of our time. (laughs) Yes, one of the greats. Uh, Apparently, Lawton was also a big fan of Disneyland. It is a good memory, Bradbury recalled in 1965. The memory of the day Captain Bly dragged me writhing through the gates of Disneyland. He plowed a furrow in the mobs. He surged ahead, one great all-enveloping presence from whom all fell aside. I followed in the wake of Moses as he bade the waters part, and part they did. The crowds dropped their jaws, and buffeted by the passage of his immense body through the shocked air, spun about and stared at us. We made straight for the nearest boat. Wouldn't Captain Bly? The Jungle Ride. He loved the Jungle Ride. (laughs) He would have loved the Swamp Ride. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, he would have. Uh, Bradbury tells of their trip aboard the Jungle Cruise, of their journey on flight to the moon, and of their moonlit circuit of the rivers of America on the Mark Twain as a jazz band played. Bradbury was sold. Disneyland liberates men to their better selves, he later said. Here the wild brute is gently corralled, not wised and squashed, not put upon and harassed, not tromped on by real estate operators, not exhausted by smog and traffic. In 1964, Bradbury actually met Walt, a story he would tell many times over the years. And it is here that I must address an undeniable fact. Bradbury was many things, a writer, a poet, a mythmaker, a storyteller. He was a big thinker. He was also, to all outward appearances, and I say this with a heaping truckload of respect and affection, often completely full of baloney. Uh, A lot of times his interest seems to have been much more heavily inclined towards what made a good story than what was actually true. Just keep that in mind for the rest of this saga. Anyway, to hear Bradbury tell it, 
They met during the holiday season at the old Bullock's Wilshire department store. I was Christmas shopping, he later recalled, and I saw a man coming toward me loaded with Christmas presents. I said, that's Walt Disney. I rushed up to him and said, Mr. Disney? He said, yes. I said, I'm Ray Bradbury, and I love your movies. He said, Ray Bradbury, I know your books. I said, thank God. And he said, why? I said, (laughs) because I'd like to take you to lunch sometime. And Walt said, tomorrow. Isn't that beautiful? Not next month, not someday, tomorrow. Walt was spontaneous. The next day, I met him at his office, and we had lunch. Soup and sandwiches on an old card table. I told him how much I loved Disneyland, and he was thrilled to hear it. Uh, Soup and sandwiches, Jeff. I mean, I would, but do find it kind of odd. But not really. They needed our... The card uh, table seems odd. More Our, like, yellow uh, little tights. Little tights table. (laughs) Little table to have soup and sandwiches at. Uh, In Bradbury's retellings, before he arrived for that lunch with Walt, he was sternly and firmly informed by Walt's secretary that he had one hour and one hour only for the meeting. Walt was a busy guy, naturally, and he had places to go that afternoon. They talked about a lot of things during that lunch, including their Midwestern childhoods. There lay Walt's greatest strength, Bradbury said in 1981. He displayed constant proofs of his childhood. He wasn't childish in any way. He didn't let his memories get in his path, but he did use them and grew with them. He didn't let anyone talk him out of his loves, as most of us do by the time we are 17 and our so-called friends and well-meaning but ignorant relatives have brainwashed us into insignificance. (laughs) Walt spoke of his past with immense affection, but the future now, well, that was really something. Man, what a guy. Ray Bradbury. Bradbury is super excited about everything, (laughs) as we will continue to discover throughout the story. In a different account of this meeting, Bradbury says that Walt greeted him warmly, only to then say, cryptically and seemingly out of nowhere, nothing has to die. (laughs) In this retelling, Walt was saying about the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, and how all those wonderful pavilions would have to be torn down by the end of 1965. Walt thought this was a waste, so he started telling Ray that he was planning to build a sort of permanent World's Fair in Florida, something that could grow and change over time, but never would end. Will never end. Now, far be it for me to disagree with a great <laughs> like Bradbury. But I've always called shenanigans on the Walt told me about a permanent World's Fair he was going to build in Florida story. It was a great narrative to tell in 1982 when Disney had actually built a kind of World's Fair in Florida. But I've never seen anything to suggest that Walt was thinking of such a thing in 1964. Just just a good tale, I think. Yeah, a yarn, which Walt would have loved, I'm sure. Yeah. Regardless, Walt and Bradbury wrapped up their lunch after an hour, uh, tidied up their soup and sandwich, and Bradbury was preparing to leave as the secretary glanced at her watch and gave him the stink eye. But Wade said, Walt, there's something else I have to show you. And so, says Bradbury, they went on a tour of WED to see everything that was coming to the Disney parks. In some retellings, he says they went on a test ride of the People Mover, In others, he talks about seeing prototypes for the Mr. Lincoln animatronic. 
And in others, he tells of Walt showing him a preliminary model of Walt Disney World and telling him how the monorail would go through the contemporary lobby, which is, of course, total baloney. Uh, In every telling, of course, the story ends with the secretary fussing at Bradbury, who in turn blames it all on Walt. (laughs) And everybody has a good laugh. And it freezes to credits. That's right. Uh, Whatever happened that day, audio animatronics seemed to really have captured Bradbury's imagination. In 1965, he wrote a piece about the technology for Holiday Magazine entitled The Machine-Tooled Happy Land. The piece is very (laughs) pro-robot, said Bradbury. Snobbery now could cripple our intellectual development. After I had heard too many people sneer at Disney and his audio-animatronic Abraham Lincoln in the Illinois exhibit at the New York World's Fair, I went to the Disney robot factory in Glendale. (laughs) I watched the finishing touches being put on a second computerized electric and air-pressure-driven humanoid that will live at Disneyland from this summer on. I saw this new effigy of Mr. Lincoln sit, stand, shift his arm, turn his wrists, twitch his fingers, put his hands behind his back, turn his head, look at me, blink, and prepare to speak. In those few moments, I was filled with an awe I have rarely felt in my life. Uh, Bradbury also reveals a vision for the technology that underscores why he would be such a good fit for Epcot a decade later. Send your mind on to the year 2065. A mere century from now, set yourself down with a group of children entering an audio-animatronic museum. Inside, you find the primal sea from which we swam and crawled up on the land. In that sea, the lizard beasts that tore the air with strange cries for a million on a million years. Robot animals feasting and being feasted upon as robot ape man waits in the wings for the nightmare blood to cease flowing. (laughs) Farther on, you see robot cavemen frictioning fire into existence, bringing a mammoth down in a hairy avalanche, curing pelts, drawing quicksilver horse flights like flashes of motion pictures on cavern walls, robot Vikings treading the Vinland coastal sands, Caesar, computerized, speaks in the forum, falls in the Senate, lies dead and perfect as Antony declaims over his body for the ten thousandth time. Napoleon, ticking as quietly as a clock shop at Waterloo. Generals Grant and Lee, alive again at Appomattox. King John, all hums and oiled whirs at Runnymede, signing Magna Carta. Fantastic? Perhaps. Ridiculous? Somewhat. Nonsensical? Vulgar? A touch. Not worth the doing? Worth doing a thousand times over. I wonder why they didn't put the uh, Caesar assassination in uh, Spaceship Earth. <laughs> I know. Oh, at least they got Robot Ape Man, kind of. <laughs> not, not really. We need when more Robot Ape Man. Nightmare blood stop. <laughs> Bradbury also spells out an idea which he would kind of obsess about over the next decade plus. I believe Plato actually existed for this afternoon under a laurel tree in a lovely country place. I heard him discourse with friends, argue by the quiet hour. The building stones of a great republic fell from his mouth. Uh, Bradbury really loved the idea of an audio animatronic Plato 
hanging out and talking to people. In 1976, he delivered a boozy and blustery 90-minute address to a banquet of Imagineers and industry representatives who were being courted for participation in Epcot. Uh, it really wasn't a very politically correct speech. A lot, a lot of uh, yeah. saucy jokes to kick off. <laughs> yeah. uh, as part of this freewheeling stream of consciousness speech, he revisited this exact same idea from a decade prior. We turn in at the year... 400 before Christ. And sitting there in the middle of the Grecian plain under a tree, eating honey and drinking some sort of wonderful wine, is Plato and Aristotle and maybe Euripides. They're sitting there. And I walk up as a young boy and I say to Plato, how goes it with the Republic? And he tells me. Huh? He's a robot. I can sit down and discuss the Republic with him. How exciting that would be. Huh? I turn to Euripides and say, explain your place to me. Or I turn to Aristotle and I say, tell me about your poetics, which are still as valid today as they were 2,400 years ago. His descriptions of what a young man is, what a man is, what a woman is, still apply. They were the same people 2,400 years ago, but now a robot can sit and talk with me. We have input, output, wonderful exchange. All right, let me give you a variation on this. I go into a large banquet room, and seated in that room, there is a huge banquet table, which I describe as a banqueting of words, a feasting of life, huh? a feasting of life. And every other chair is empty. And during the evening, I change chairs every 20 minutes or half an hour. Maybe I go back for 30 nights. And in the first chair, sitting next to me is Sarah Teasdale. And then I change chairs and I go over and here's Emily Dickinson. I say, Emily, tell me one of your poems, and she tells me. And then I move out of the next chair, and here's George Bernard Shaw waiting for me. And I say, give me one of your prefaces. And he gives me the preface to St. John. And then I move on, and in the next chair is Mark Twain. I said, Mark, tell me about your life on the Mississippi. And then I move on to the next chair, and there's a robot waiting for me to tell me. Maybe it's Teddy Roosevelt telling me about the presidency when he was president 50 or so years ago. And... Uh, that's a wonderful thing. I would like to experiment with that uh, so that we can go in and meet these people that we've never met and just go around this big banquet table of life eternally as a, as a student, as a child, as an eternal child, speaking to them so that when they are done speaking, we then want to go out and read their works. That's one of the things that art does for us, isn't it? A good motion picture makes us curious. So we go out and suddenly read Shakespeare for no other good reason than that night our life was changed by that film. Okay, those are two variations on an idea. Then it'd be fun to put together a robot device where you as a student could go in and a voice would recite poetry to you. Something from Shakespeare, something from Robert Frost, a line, a couple of lines from Aldous Huxley, and then you punch the computer along the way and that computer then prints out on a screen the images to go with the poem you just heard. So you make up your own motion picture as you go. So you would have the fun of matching your image in your mind to the words heard, read to you, off a piece of paper. Wouldn't that be fun? I think it would be. You could do the reverse of it, of course. Look at images, write your own poem. Because it's all the same. Writing poetry, writing screenplays, are the same form of poetry, the same metaphor that we come back to again and again and again tonight. So that's the next thing. Sometime in the next 10 years, John, we'll, we'll work on that one together, okay?
Uh, Robot Play-Doh, Jeff. This, I mean, this event and performance is really incredible. It gets so out of hand. It, you know, I I love Ray Bradbury, so don't read too much into this. But the his tone and like stream of consciousness is very Trumpian in this. It's like, what? Where did that come from? It's like, <laughs> there is a lot of where did that come from? <laughs> it's like, oh, we're going here now. And then he'll kind of have the little Trump cold a second being like, very nice thing. You know, this thing is very beautiful. Like <laughs> whatever his version of that is. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's the sort of like gushing praise. I mean, it starts off with an extended riff on like, saucy jokes about the mating habits of irish people yeah and uh it's it's a real back slappy back room steak dinner kind of speech and then he gets uh <laughs> then he gets like really wound i mean he gets wound up yes he does and is, he gets he's, excited. he's preaching yeah um it just it's really underscores i was watching this the other day like man 1976 was different different than today mm. just yeah, absolutely absolutely a lot a lot of industry guys chortling in back rooms yes yes uh walton bradbury had other encounters over the years uh, bradbury had formed a group to advocate for mass transit in los angeles and was really pushing city hall hard to build monorails Frustrated, he told Walt that he should run for mayor himself, to which Walt reportedly replied, why should I be mayor when I'm already king? At least, that's the story. Another time in 1965, Walt allegedly told Bradbury that he was preparing to overhaul Tomorrowland at Disneyland. Excited, Bradbury asked Walt to hire him to work on ideas for the area, but Walt rebuffed him, reportedly saying, you're a genius and I'm a genius. After two weeks, we'd kill each other. Um, that is probably true. <laughs> I don't know whether <laughs> Walt said that, but it was yeah. probably true. I doubt he said it, but I'm sure that is true. <laughs> yes. Yeah. In 1966, Bradbury claimed, Walt said that since Bradbury had done so much for them, Walt wondered what they could do for Bradbury. Bradbury's response was, open the vaults. Walt made a call and Bradbury went to the animation morgue where he loaded up on sales and production art from classic Disney films. Oh, wow. Just like literally held out his arms, had him put a stack of stuff and Jeez. walked out the door. After Walt's death, Bradbury went on to actually work for Wed Enterprises. His first project seems to have been in 1970 when he joined forces with Mark Davis to work on a carousel theater show for Walt Disney World that they hoped would be sponsored by Monsanto. Called the Yestermorrow Time Machine, the show seems to have been trademark Mark Davis wackiness. As Bradbury told a reporter that August, I am creating the Time Machine Ride Theater for Disney Florida right now, using robots, film, lights, music, etc. Grand fun, and I am being paid for playing with these great toys. Sadly, Monsanto never sponsored the show, and it would be another five years before the Carousel of Progress arrived at the Magic Kingdom. In 1975, work on Epcot began in earnest, and Bradbury was brought in to consult. As part of the Epcot effort, a number of conferences called Epcot Forums were held for researchers and potential industry participants, 
in order to define Epcot and assess how Disney-style entertainment could be merged with real-world scientific progress. Bradbury was a fixture at these events, including the 1976 Conference on Agriculture and Energy I mentioned previously. Bradbury was thrilled to work with Imagineers. He called them Renaissance people and a Schweitzer centrifuge. This was a phrase he trotted out over the years a lot, uh, referring to a quote by Albert Schweitzer, do something wonderful, people may imitate it. Here he is talking about it in 1976. We can make history ahead of time. You can be the example. You be the Schweitzer people. Isn't that what he was talking about all of his life? Set an example and let people imitate it. Let us put our heads on the block. huh? Let's have our heads chopped off. But set an example that is proud and beautiful and wondrous so that everyone wants to be like you. So when you leave here tonight and tomorrow, and all of us together, let us set an example for the world to imitate. And we can change the whole world. We can change the history of the world. I'm positive of that. It's not going to be easy. We're going to fight. We're going to fall out. We're going to come back. We're going to be a family with all the things that are wrong with the family. But the, the wonderful thing will be the central core, the search for the metaphor. And when we find it and we work with it, then the changes come. We'll be working then with a library. This will be a, a huge library where information will come in from all over the world. And young people will come in from all over the world with the, in, the ferment that they can bring to a, a thing like Epcot. And we then create that society which was talked of in the time of da Vinci and Michelangelo and hasn't been talked about too much since. A rebirth of the kind of idealism that God knows our time needs. In 1977, Bradbury toured a journalist around WED, and you'll pardon me here for doing a lot of reading, but his quotations are truly amazing. There'll be a future world here, with a college, a Disney university, and facilities for people to live. We can only imagine what's to come with new computer technologies and communication systems. You will be able to interact with everything, with the video screens and laser games. There will be a huge lagoon here, and across from it will be a world showcase, with pavilions representing all the countries of the planet. We're doing everything right, improving the landscape rather than ruining it, and we're using solar energy. Everything will be controlled. I'm working with nice people two or three days a week. It's costing hundreds of millions of dollars. Section I'm working on, maybe 40 to 50 million. I have to write the basic scenario, work out the three-dimensional robots, factor in the audio animatronics, the paintings, the dialogue, the music. He's a busy guy. Uh, over time, Bradbury's Epcot theater concepts, i.e. the rooms with the animatronic philosophers, had begun to slowly develop into what we know as Spaceship Earth. Again, apologies for the lengthy quote, but this is just too much. We bring the audience into a kind of triple theater here. First, they come into a deep past theater, moving toward a history theater. Then they are shot forward into the future and blasted finally into space. Here we put the audience into these pods and sink them down through the levels of time so that they see all the architectures of the past as they sink down into the grave, as it were. We reverse everything, in other words. We take all the architectures apart and put them back into the ground. 
We take for our basic metaphor the 47 cities of Troy of Heinrich Schliemann. When Schliemann claimed he found Homer's Troy, everybody told him he was nuts. But you know, he found 10 Troys, each one beneath the other. When he left, 37 or so more Troys were found by other archaeologists. All in all, there are 45 or 50 Troys. Anyway, here in Spaceship, we start with the most sophisticated level of history and go backward to bedrock, finally, where Earth is created out of the sun. Then you explode the whole thing forward, and dinosaurs appear, and you travel the pods along, and you rebuild the pyramids. Draw on the walls, do the cavemen, move on forward to Ben Franklin, etc. For instance, as you pass through the Renaissance, Michelangelo reaches up and paints the whole Sistine ceiling above you. You can do this with the audio-animatronic robots. Build the boy David out of the rock in a minute or so. Hmm? Then you move further along, improving our methods of communication and survival. Finally, at the end, we blast you into space and suspend you there while we ask you questions. What must we do? How can we do it? What is our future? Eventually, we will go off to Alpha Centauri, but before we do, we have to clean the air, unpollute the seas, pat the dolphins on the head, save the whales, do everything. That's the exciting thing. Do everything. It takes imagination and will. That's all. And if you have a failure of imagination and will, you're sunk, regardless of where you're living. This was Arnold Toynbee's whole thing. The tribes in the South Seas who didn't respond to the challenge vanished, and other people took their place. We have to respond well, and it's tremendously exciting, so we have to go into space. And when we finish this whole journey, you've gotten a whole new perspective. Finally, we send each individual out of Spaceship Earth with a challenge. We... (laughs) We use Da Vinci's human figure and spin it with force coming out of each finger towards each member of the audience. We fix their faces on the ceiling and spin them in a centrifuge and send them out the door and say to the people, go out and make that future, each of you. This is all caps. Make them responsible by God. Go get them. Open all the doors and send them out into the city. These ideas are all mine, he continued. <laughs> I conceived them. Now we have to build them. Oh, I bet yeah. the Imagineers loved uh, the challenge here, the charge. <laughs> I picture the final room being like a Gravitron with like the Da Vinci <laughs> human figure pointing at everybody. Like a little bit of Poseidon's fury in there. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Da Vinci's fury. And now it has got. You go do something with do your life. Do something. Pat the dolphins. Wow. <laughs> ben Franklin says, "Pat the dolphins." Man, uh, why? Yeah, all his ideas. He was clear to underscore. But as if that wasn't enough, Bradbury was also working on the space pavilion. Uh, this is the one we spoke about with Tim Delaney, which would use a sort of vertical circle vision system for these space probes. Said Bradbury, there will be 18 windows like the Circorama at Disneyland, except twice the number of screens. The audience will be split into two sections and come into the room separately with a black curtain between the sections. The people will be surrounded with screens that will enable them to look into deep space. We'll visit the moon, go past the rings of Saturn, go on past Jupiter, and then grab on to the tail of a comet. 
Also on that long tail will be starships from other parts of the solar system carried along there for millions of years. Then we will split the audience into halves again and bring the parade of dead spaceships right down between them. You'll be able to look in and see the dead strangers inside from other worlds. Isn't that wild? This is going to cost around 30 to 40 million. Uh, one half will be Titan 1, the other Titan 2. When you're inside, a voice will say, Titan 1, ready for takeoff, and the lights will come up on that section. Then Titan 2, ready for takeoff, and the lights will come up there. And then they can all see each other. And then we fuse the two sections together into a circle. Whirl the centrifuge. He loved the centrifuge. Uh, blast them off, and we're on our way. And you pause by the Statue of Liberty and say, which way to the moon? <laughs> Man, I I don't know why the dead the dead people in the spaceship. Well, that is truly odd. You just got to wonder if he's like mentioning this stuff over and over again. He's like, and of course we're gonna do the dead people. We're gonna go by the dead people. And it's gonna be great. And yeah, we're like okay. John Hinch nodding in the corner. Got to have those dead people. It's like the cover of like an eighties like VHS video in the video store. Yikes! Yeah. On July 22nd, 1977, Bradbury submitted his concept for the show called Man and His Spaceship Earth. By this time, the story had evolved to focus on the link between communication and survival, and heavily leaned on the metaphor of writing on the wall. Said Bradbury, what we need, our show makes clear, is access to accurate and relevant information. What we need is an opportunity to learn the alternatives, choices, and options available. What we need is broad public understanding of the consequences of our decisions. What we need is the confidence born of greater participation, greater understanding, greater knowledge. What we need in the end is to make the correct course of action. Now, this sounds like something very relevant even today. Yes. This I can get behind. This is all very needed public service. Uh, Bradbury was brought in to try and sell the Spaceship Earth attraction to IBM, uh, who was their main sponsor they were courting at the time. But eventually the company declined to participate in Epcot, but they did hire Bradbury to tour the West Coast, giving motivational speeches <laughs> to their own employees. Man could give a speech. Yeah, bring him on. Bradbury did become a leading voice in promoting Epcot when it opened in 1982. Speaking to Omni Magazine, he said, Everyone in the world will come to these gates. Why? Because they want to look at the world of the future. They want to see how to make better human beings. That's what the whole thing is about. The cynics are already here and they're terrifying one another. What Disney is doing is showing the world that there are alternative ways to do things that can make us all happy. If we can borrow some of the concepts of Disneyland and Disney World and Epcot, then indeed the world can be a better place. Although Bradbury's initial spaceship Earth concepts had been seen as too sprawling and abstract and were boiled down for the final attraction, the original script for the show was heavily influenced by Bradbury's treatment. But just a few years later, this narration was changed. Imagineer Tom Fitzgerald claimed that Bradbury's version had been too poetic. People couldn't process the poetic narration and still process the movement and what they were seeing, he said. I rewrote it for Walter Cronkite at a fifth grade level so that it was low enough that kids understood, but not offensive or boring for parents. 
But even Bradbury's trip to Epcot's opening celebration was not without adventure. In 1982, Bradbury was 62 and had never flown on an airplane. He traveled by either train or ocean liner, typically. Uh, for Epcot's opening, he was going to take the train, but he arrived at the station in Los Angeles to discover that there was no connection operating between New Orleans and Orlando. He'd have to take the train all the way up to Washington, D.C. and back down the east coast of Florida, so instead he called a professor he knew at Tulane and arranged for some students to pick him up at the station in New Orleans in exchange for a free seminar. I, I, I think like he was going to get him like, ah, you kids just drive me to Orlando, probably. <laughs> I don't know. When he got there, he couldn't find the students. So in his words, quote, I found this pretty young lady reporter and asked her to have dinner with me. We had a marvelous evening. The next day, I hired a limousine to take me to Orlando in comfort. Old Black Joe, the driver, was about 70 years old. About halfway to Orlando, we had a flat tire. I ended up having to do most of the tire changing. He had no spare tire, and it took me about four or five hours to find a tire because limousines use different sized tires. And when we got started again, the engine blew. Fortunately, we were about 100 yards from Holiday Inn, which is the last place I like to stay. I got a couple of six packs of beer and watched the World Series. The next day, I hired another cab for $125 to take me the last 100 miles to Orlando. <laughs> oh, man. Enough said. Uh, so disastrous was the trip uh, that Bradbury finally decided to give in and fly home after the ceremonies. He said that somebody was trying to tell him something, and that was to fly. So uh, Disney bought him a ticket, drove him to the airport, said Bradbury. Someone from Delta Airlines met me took me to the VIP room, gave me three double martinis, and then poured me into the jet. The stewardess kissed me on both cheeks before we took mm -hmm. off. Uh, he was accompanied on the trip by a number of Disney luminaries, including Pat Scanlon, Randy Bright, John Zovich, Mike Bagnell, and Bob Yanni. Well, Bob Yanni can take care of Ray Bradbury. <laughs> yeah, but Bob Yanni's like, I know your type. Uh, this wasn't Bradbury's last brush with Disney, of course. For Disneyland Paris, he contributed ideas for the Phantom Manor and the Orbitron. For Orbitron, he said, I suggested that the planets should move in the opposite direction of the rockets. This makes the rockets seem to move at twice their actual speed. Tim Delaney dedicated Paris's Space Mountain to Bradbury and to Jules Verne. Two Bradbury stories were turned into Disney movies over the years, 1983's Something Wicked This Way Comes, and 1998's The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. Uh, this second film was produced by Roy E. Disney, who was a huge Bradbury fan, but despite that, the film was released direct-to-video. Uh, one last honor came in 2007, when Disneyland dedicated the Halloween tree in Frontierland, based upon Bradbury's story of the same name. I belong here in Disneyland ever since I came here 50 years ago. Bradbury said at the dedication, I'm glad I'm going to be a permanent part of the spirit of Halloween at Disneyland. And Bradbury always remained dedicated to Walt's vision. In the foreword to Howard and Amy Green's Remembering Walt, Ray wrote, Walt Disney was more important than all the politicians we've ever had. They pretended optimism. He was optimism. He has done more to change the world for the good than almost any politician who ever lived.
As Bradbury said back in 1976, we needed to set examples and have some fun in the process. To hell with you! To hell with you! And I said, there's a scene at the end of things to come which ties in with everything we've talked about here today and tonight. And the alternatives are the same. Are we going to be Toynbee's people? Are we going to be Schweitzer's people? Are you going to help me set examples that will be enviable so that people will be jealous of your joy and your fun? Because this must be not a serious task. If you think this is going to be a serious job for all of us, you better quit. This has got to be fun. It's got to be joyous. It's got to be a frolic in order for our best thinking to the, come to the top of our heads. If you're going to go away here and think banking systems and money, just don't ever come back. Huh? But if you're going to think joy and fun and delight and changing the world forever and setting examples that can eliminate 1984 and make 2001 a joyous celebration for all of us, swell. Welcome to the club. Now, at the end of, of things to come, cabal and passworthy are staring at this great, round, telescopic image of the stars and the moon on which their son and daughter are going off into space for the first time. And, and, and Passworthy said, My God, is there no end? Will we never rest? What is there for mankind? And Cabal says, No, no rest, unless you wish to accept that thing, and that thing's name is death. No rest except becoming ourselves, becoming the best thing that is ourselves. This, the tomb, and the dust, and the worm, or that, the stars, and becoming immortal, and living forever. And the things we've discussed here today, the same way. We're not talking about stars here today. We're talking about immediate goals, but the stars are locked into it. This is the seedbed seed bed world that we live in. You clean up the seedbed with me. You accomplish with your imaginations, making it a better seedbed. Clean up the world so that we leave it and hang the sign out for rent. It will be a clean world to live, and we will look back generations from tonight and thank this generation for having accomplished the dream. But in Cabal's words, which is it to be? You want to go back into the grave where we can all go? Or will you, with me, point to the stars and a little below the stars and accomplish the dream and live forever? Which shall it be, he said. Which shall it be? Thank you very much. That about wraps up our episode for this month. The great minds of our time, Michael, going lowbrow. You know they're they're donning their clown outfit and uh, getting on the ice over there at the Disney <laughs> Studios. Yeah, they sure are. They sure are. But they're still the best skaters in the in the building. So true, those guys. So uh, true. Yeah, and the thing is. There are so many more we can talk about and probably will in the future. They're, 
you know, you never know who was going to show up back in the day uh, at the Disney studio. That's right. And sometimes they would light a little spark, one little spark that would lead to something else. So, yeah, these stories will be told further uh, as we go further. So stay tuned for that. But uh, it's a time where we check in with our Patreon, see if we have any new folks signed up for our uh, Patreon. Michael, did anybody sign up? Yes. Uh, this month, we would like to welcome Brian to the Patreon. He has signed up to help us out, help keep the show going. And uh, we'll be getting early access to episodes, be getting a fun little packet of swag in the mail. And uh, also uh, be getting access to our monthly live stream, which is a fun little time where we get together with friends and, uh, you know, have a little audio visual buffet of things related to our subject of the month and just have a fun chat, a fun hang with pals in the chat. It's a good time. So uh, big thanks to him. Big thanks to everybody who helps us out, keeps the show rolling. Yeah, we'd like to thank everybody who joined our Patreon and, and still stays involved. If you want to join up that, you can go to patreon.com slash progresscityusa. You can also email us at podcast at progresscityusa. We're also on Twitter. Michael's at progresscityusa. And I'm at Jeff G. Crawford. Uh, if you'd like to help us out in other ways, you can rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We always like the reviews. Uh, it helps us out with the search engines. So we'll see you soon, uh, probably in a couple weeks. We can't tell you with what, but you're going to like it. And <laughs> so from all of us to all of you, just remember these words from Mr. Ray Bradbury. We do our work on faith. We are paid with money printed after the fact. Money is an act of faith representing a thing. That's all money ever, ever has been. So by the time you get the money, the work is already done. Your love has changed the world. So then my next question to you is, why not change the world then and get the money after, huh? How about that? For Christ's sake, go out of here and think of this in your corporate structure. Let's change the world and then get the money, huh? Yeah. Right now, it's time to go. Remember... Everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. They call it progress, progress. Our time is at an end. We'll be seeing you again next time. At progress, progress. Meet in Progress City, USA. You've been listening to the Progress City Radio Hour. Created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at progresscityusa.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at arborridgestudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.